Thompson, where the fuck are we? You should know where we are. We're on the bridge. Oh! Bridge of the NCC 1701D. Thank you very much. Okay, okay, that Fuck explains e. it. Is this like the episode where Dr. Crusher, like, gets, like, sent to the gaslight dimension? That was my plan. No, actually, if you've seen the episode of Black Mirror with the USS Callister, I mean, that's I do, I kind of not. what this place... You haven't seen that? Oh, well, no, listeners no. who have seen uh, it will know I, what I I'm like technology. About. Overall, I like technology, so I've seen very little of Black Mirror. That you should not be overly influenced by the popular uh, understanding of okay, that Okay, to be show. in my fairness, Although it every, is, every episode I've seen of Black Mirror is like that. It isn't entirely wrong, but USS Callister is a good episode, and some of the viewers would uh, listen, right. have listened to that. Um, but that uh, involves elements, involves some themes that uh, pretty much correspond with why this place exists, why we're here, um, and it's not the only one. Yeah. Plenty of Trekkies and Trekkers over the decades have used other spaces to build replicas of various ships. Um, it actually took me a while to get an NCC-1701D other space. There's a surprising number of Bs. I don't know why. Um, but like the first one, the one with TOS, the one in TNG, they're really expensive, or they're really hard to get to, or they're really dangerous. Um, there's a reason that we're not in 10 Forward, where I'd rather record, um, but that's just full of fucking tribbles. And they're fuck tribbles, you know? And I yeah. Just, uh, well, like, from what I remember when we found this place out back, and, like, we're, like, looking around at the first time. This place isn't, like, super filled out. You know, like, the, the stuff that has, like, proper sets on the show is pretty on point. But if you go to any part of the ship that doesn't have, like, an official canon depiction, apparently there was some sort of argument between, like, a Steve and a Craig where they couldn't actually settle on what those non-canon rooms look like. So, like, there, yep. there's... It's like an old horror game. There's like a lot of just locked doors that we aren't allowed to go into. Presumably, exactly. they just go out in the void anyway. So, yeah, that's what the best yeah. ones. The best of these kind of other spaces are usually made by solitary um, wizards, yeah. solitary adepts. It does come up when a cabal will try to build one. It's very common, but it usually ends in bloodshed, and they usually collapse. They just pop, which is a pity. But um, this is a rental, so. Um, yeah, be careful in here. Uh, I when would did put you down start fucking towel. renting this? I, I just just twenty minutes ago. Um, this this all right. It's usually they rent two hours, and that's why I've put these okay. like the plastic sheeting on the seats. Yeah. If yeah, you want to yeah. sit down, it's you probably shouldn't sit directly down on these seats. Nah, I, I hate this shit. It makes my <laughs> makes my hair go up. And like, what I remember of checking this place out, like. There's the stuff with the doors. The holodeck yeah. only does one thing, some weird scenario involving Mina Sirtis and a Golden Corral. Which, it's they've really lost its really luster hard. after the fourth time. We're, yeah, we're holodecks into, are hard. Well, no, even, it just, basically in a holodeck, it's just like trying to have your cake and eat it too when you're building yeah. an other space with a holodeck on it. I mean, the it, it's it's ridiculous. It's really hard to do. And it's never really fully pulled off. Because you've already got an other space. What do you need a holodeck yeah. for? Yeah. You're making an like other wishing... space that contains the set of all other other spaces. 
It's like wishing for a million wishes. It's, it's against the rules. Not just that. It's against the spirit of the whole enterprise. It's a guess. And, and Well, literally. okay, not literally. <laughs> you know the fuck I mean. The question remains, why have you brought me here? Well, Usually when you blindfold me and take me out back, I... Like, there's always part of me that assumes I'm going to get lassied. And it hasn't happened yet, but I'd still like an explanation. <laughs> What's lassied? You know, taken out behind the shed and... Oh, shit, okay. No, you're not going to get... No, no, no. I say it's part of it, but you, usually it turns out all right, but I would still like an explanation. You don't need to worry about being lassied. I'm not going to let that happen again. <laughs> Wait, what? Don't worry about it. Uh, anyway, let's talk about... How we came here, and this is kind of a bit of an oblique connection, but not that oblique, because I was going through some of the documents so helpfully provided back in the day by the Fed Wizards, Greg Stolze and John Tynes, and, all. and I came to, actually, you know, I will check who wrote that pit. Uh, one moment. I think it might have well, been. Why one of the freelancers, like fucking Mike Merles wrote it or something? It might have been. It doesn't say. Okay, no, it doesn't say here. Mitchell. Alright, I was writing, this might have been Stolze, um, I'll have to ask him, uh, wait, or it could have been Underkoffler. Anyway, in Break Today, the Mac Attack sourcebook from 2002, they include a sample crew, uh, the Rubble Rubble crew, and there is one member of that crew called Mitchell Voorhees, and I was just going over Break Today as I do for my own personal research uh, for my own personal projects a lot of good and stuff in there, yeah. mm -hmm, there is for your independent research independent research yes I'm like the belling cat of the occult underground at this point uh, since I've, I don't have that fed backing but I came across his character Mitchell Voorhees his name on the uh, mailing list was Commander V uh, which is interesting because it links to another show but what surprised me about him not surprised but what interested me is the fact that he was so obsessed with a TV show entitled War Star 7 and as I read about it and I kept reading like there's a few little details in here and there's something in the back of my mind it's like I was like wait a minute I've fucking seen this show and it was like an odd but like I couldn't quite get at it as if it was blocked or like inaccessible but I could sort of like I could there were little flashes like I could see the images of some of the characters, like Captain Santiago Church, there was, a, I could see like a glimpse of a memory of a scene that I saw when I was like eight or nine years old and like in like, um, what's the word for it? Uh, syndication. And I was like, what the yeah. fuck is this show? Where did this show go from? And I, and I did some research and this show has been deleted. This show definitely existed, but it's been deleted and people are looking for it. But I don't know what, whether this is some Cleomancy bullshit or maybe something to do with the uh, the gatekeeper uh, we were talking about before, uh, yeah. which is possible. But yeah, this show, just it's, it's been... I don't know if it's been erased or it's been hidden from access. So I thought I'm going to try to find as much details out there uh, as I can. Internet, um, divination talking to drunks in alleyways, all the usual As one does, yeah. Of, yeah, as one does. And I found a few things, but I think to launch straight into the existence like, and the details about this show, um, which has been deliberately hidden from the collective consciousness by 
parties unknown. Um, yeah, is there something dangerous in the show? Or is it just... I don't know. I mean... All right. So we, all, you, we, we've insulted many powerful people on this program. We have. And not dead we yet. have. Uh, and I, 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 it is fortunate that our uh, station is somewhere that they can't possibly get to us. Yep. I wouldn't be surprised that, like, we've survived the sleepers, we've survived Alex Abel, we've survived uh, Greg Stolze and John Tynes, but we, get, we ended up getting murdered and dumped in the astral plane by some nerds. That would actually so, be on brand. My key question here is, what is the fan base for this show called? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good oh, you weren't able to find that out? I mean, that makes sense, I guess. Like, well, okay, first, before we go uh, before we go into uh, Warstar uh, 7, I want to talk initially about shows like Warstar, specifically Star Trek, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking television-based, like, like the sort of shows that we got syndication, um, space opera sci-fi and it's but like the early position. stuff right early stuff for the most part um, right. I'm thinking especially Star Trek and this is why we're here this is why we're not on the bridge of the Millennium Falcon which is also fairly expensive to get to now I heard the mouse just has like dozens of those things they've made as other spaces that you can just go to in a warehouse and rent for a couple hundred but like, they're, like there's no soul in there they're mass produced and the worst thing there's nothing worse than a mass produced other space it, it's like yeah. going on in it's a small world ride but like fully immersed in the uncanny valley it's just awful I went to the the Disney Death Star other space and the the stormtroopers, I'm pretty sure that like I, obviously they're probably not going to be human. They're other space creatures, yeah. but they they wig me out, and I'm I'm pretty okay with unnatural creatures most of the time. Some of my best friends are unnatural creatures, but uh, there's something about those stormtroopers. Just mm. yeah, we don't fuck with a mouse. Like that's a show policy. Mouse is a bridge too far. But I'm not I'm not afraid of talking shit about CBS. Uh, yeah. No, CBS, uh, the, the sorcerers who work for them are are pitiful. None of their previous assassination attempts on me have succeeded, so I'm not going to start to be They haven't even now. tried with me, so there you go. That shows, goes to show you. What is it exactly about Star Trek and that sci-fi television in particular that's interesting you? Well, the interesting thing, especially about Star Trek, and I'm thinking uh, initially of the original series at this point, yeah. is that it came into the American consciousness, it came onto American television screens at about the same time as the explosion of postmodern magic schools in the 1960s. And it came along with the height of the space race and the so-called American victory in the space race, even though America only won one thing. Uh, Soviets got everything else. Oh, in the matters, USA, the USA. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know how it is. I know how it is. But that means it was very important in, in terms of the zeitgeist at the time, because um, so many people's eyes were raised to the heavens. Star Trek yeah. did fit into that uh, milieu, but it wasn't all that successful a show at the time. Um, no. It was only after no. syndication that it became huge. On the other hand, um, when they first tried to cancel it. Um, it caused a quite a big hubbub. I know that the uh, people in charge were baffled by the sheer weight of uh, fan enthusiasm for the show. So this is a time when, like, American TV was full of cowboy shows and shit like that. Star Trek was expensive. There was an appetite for science fiction at the time with things like Lost in Space, but or, um, it was 
Twilight Zone would be another example that comes to mind. Yeah, Twilight Zone is, is sci-fi, definitely, uh, but it's but a, a lot movie. cheaper sci-fi. A lot cheaper sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah, you get um, to reuse all the old sets and like Star Trek. We got to put unicorn horns on dogs and shit. I, I don't want to poo-poo fucking Twilight Zone because its influence oh, on no. the culture and its influence of the occult underground is also very significant. But it was more scattershot because um, each episode... They were all like Aesop's fables, really. And they had the same sort of effect that Aesop's fables had on the ancient Greek... Sure, uh, sometimes it's just the moral is like, hey, dude, fucked up stuff happens. Like, time enough. The, the one with the glasses. The one with the glasses, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, time that, that's I, not I, a I fable. It's just like, hey, man, this guy gets done a raw deal. Isn't this fucked up? There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. It's not fair. It's not fair. No, it's a fable because it is, um, in a way... About putting all your eggs in one basket, I guess? It's a dark twist. Yeah, it's a dark twist. He's, um, he's sheer... He didn't care about the world dying. He only cared about his own selfish desires. That's fair. Even though those desires were... And he, he was a sympathetic character. It's like he didn't have the time to do what he wanted to do. But someone who, um, is presented with... The annihilation of the human race and response to it with oh fuck yeah finally I can read my Archie comics I mean that's not a very Me. moral position I mean I understand it I would be the same way <laughs> yeah I, I, think I, don't, it, I think it's one of those things it's one of the episodes that's endured because I think it's something that like pretty much everyone can kind of like sympathize with on some level yeah and sure and that guy's he was fired he just needed to sit down and Think about okay, where's the nearest optometrist? I'll I'll find my way there, and I'll go through the lenses until I get some extra pairs. And I've no, I noticed like I've been stranded. Well, that's when his in, eyes fall out. Maybe you've seen that's when his eyes fall out. He gets to the glasses shop and then just. Then he just has to go and learn braille. I mean, there's ways yeah. around this. Uh, what's what's the uh, Twilight Zone guy? Uh, Rod Sterling. So Rod Sterling. Yeah, Rod Sterling. Um, Rod Sterling might have been. A, an adept of some kind, or maybe an avatar. He was at least powerful. I think he's just a weird. Um, I mean, like, I usually tend to assume people in like positions of like actual influence or who generally have their life together broadly usually aren't adepts in my experience. That's actually a good point. At least in a certain point in history, maybe even today, Rosalind would be a good uh, iconomancer mask icon. Oh, absolutely. I think he might still be around. Yeah. Now. Gene Roddenberry is an interesting character who I think probably wasn't involved in the occult underground at all from my research. No, um, no, yeah. I, I, um, I've looked into him a bit in the past, like see if he has any... Because he's, you know, this era of Hollywood, right? Especially science fiction mm-hmm. during this time. You know, this is when Scientology is first getting off the ground. There's a lot yeah. of weird spiritualism happening and and science fiction tends to be at least somewhat adjacent to that pretty frequently um i know that jack parsons was pretty heavily involved with the early sci-fi community those are the things that immediately come into mind i mean like the other thing to keep in mind about parsons too is like this wasn't like small time occultism this was like i am studying under alistair crowley he was a duke of some kind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the old school way of saying it. Um, I think Ron Barry's wife may have been friends with uh, Anton LaVey or something like that. Oh, his first wife or his second wife? Uh, second, I think. But I don't know if oh, sure. that, that's that is very interesting. If that's true. I don't mean, quote if that's, me on that. 
Don't quote me on that. It just seems like the kind of thing that would happen in that period of Hollywood. I mean, even if it's not true according to the records, the fact that it, you remembered that while we're sitting in an other space that looks like the that's Enterprise fair. means it's probably true. I mean, it's yeah. just synchronicity no, is fair. how it works. Misremembering shit as a form of divination is underrated. All right, all right. So, uh, where are you at before that? Oh, yes. The interesting thing about Jordan Roddenberry is that he may not have been the hugest sci-fi fan that he later portrayed himself as. There is good evidence that he was a fan of like amazing stories and similar sci-fi magazines that at high school and things like that. He was a weird kid that sort of hang out by himself. Um, he was like a weird nerdy kid, very typical. But there's not a huge amount of evidence that before he started doing Star Trek that as an adult he was super into sci-fi. And this is... The evidence of his lack of interest, his early lack of interest, is brought up by the fact that when he got the the idea for Star Trek, which was very different when it was first proposed, he spent a lot of time collecting information about science fiction and especially science fiction authors um, that were accessible in California at the time. A lot of his work, he, his main dream appeared to have been writing for television and he was less interested in Star Trek like make or making sci-fi than he was to be a guy that just like he wanted to be the ideas man who does treatments for tv yeah. shows and just like puts bust them out which is like the dream uh which is an understandable dream to be just the guy they go to when you want when they want a, a hit show idea he was in his 40s and he had an interesting life um he piloted a b-19 bomber uh in world war ii um didn't didn't see that much action the one story that i found very interesting was uh him and his crew the most danger that they were ever in was when they flew into this massive fucking hurricane at the wrong like uh altitude oh, and the wrong angle and everything and they just got like thrown around and then they were stuck in the eye of the hurricane for a while and they were like fuck what do we do it was at that, that time in the war late war when they were throwing crews into bombers and send them out and the crews didn't always completely read their technical manuals before flying over to bomb the Japanese so shit happened this is a time a period of the war when accidents and the weather were killing more Americans than the Japanese were and he he could have died right then but he survived and he ended up a member of the LAPD while dreaming huh. of being yes he I didn't he would know hang about out that. yeah yeah he was a cop he used to hang out at a bar that was known to be frequented by television writers. You know, it's like, it's the opposite of those guys that hang out at cop bars, that because they wish <laughs> they were a cop. It was a cop <laughs> hanging out at the writer bar, which is, it's, it's, it's... That's fun. It's kind of endearing. And yeah, he, he kept bashing his head against this idea of like making TV shows. He had a bunch of different ideas, but this is a time period when it was a lot easier to sell something that was a lot more down to earth things like twilight zones being the exception like it was it was fucking wall-to-wall cowboy shows in this time period and rod serling had been firmly established in like radio and stuff before the step twilight zone happened so yeah exactly that was yeah, very exactly. much like an exception to the rule he wasn't just some wide-eyed bushy-tailed uh new writer coming in and being like this anthology show about fucked up stuff happens gonna knock your socks off gentlemen yeah and there's like, a bunch it, of guys smoking room being like i like the cut of this kid's jib today we've got so many streaming services so many people making tv shows that are competing for people's attention now with the mcu and just 
popular science fiction, it's come to the extent where like fantastic fiction in the mainstream is so mainstream that there's like this shit. It's it's it's, it's written the point where there's there's a lot of just generic nonsense. While back in the day, the generic nonsense was cowboy shows and the sci-fi, even if it was bad, uh, which a lot of it was, was at least a bit different. That meant that it was a hard sell for him, and his initial idea was fucking off the wall. There's a story that he went to a Dodger game with this fellow called, uh, what's his name, Knopf, who was a successful television writer, who had been introduced to Roddenberry by Sam Rolfe, who created Have Gun, Will Travel. And they were watching this baseball game and talking about it, and Roddenberry was like, do you want to hear this idea for a series? And Knopf said no. <laughs> and then Roddenberry just kept going. And it's, um, the reference I'm looking at says, has Roddenberry say, I've got another series idea. I'm going to place it at the end of the 19th century. There's a dirigible, see? And on this dirigible are all these people of mixed races, and they go from place to place each week, places no one has discovered yet. And that got his attention. And that's where Star Trek came from. Like a 19th century dirigible adventure series. Which sounds <laughs> more shit, like... All right. It's like a, it's around the world in 80 days or yeah. um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea style at first. Which wouldn't have been that yeah, successful, I don't think. It could work. It's interesting. I like, mean, there was I that get, big... There was that big 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea uh, Disney movie at the time, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah? So, yep. they're the sort of adventure stories. There were adventure stories. And, like, any kind of, like, sci-fi adventure of the time period, like, if we're talking about... Like, that was Jules Verne. So, it was already yeah. established a part of the canon. Like, everyone knew who Jules Verne was. Like, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, like, late 19th century, early 20th century writers um, of sci-fi were respected more than the people who were writing in the cheap magazines even though some of the stuff in the cheap magazines was very good but it had a stigma attached yeah. um, so it was easy to adapt older stories the mixed racist thing is interesting to me because yeah like that's my understanding of Ron Barry is that he came to science fiction less from you know being a science fiction fan and more from sort of the utopianism angle right yes and this is what's quite important about Star Trek in terms of the collective unconsciousness and the occult underground is the fact that it is based in a vision of the future, a utopian vision of the future, which is very much linked to, but also a repudiation of mid-20th century American culture, um, which gives it a paradox, which is fairly potent. And there's lots of interesting stories, um, which probably aren't occult-related, but there's a lot of strange coincidences um, in the making of Star Trek. Like, so many points when it wouldn't have been very difficult for a butterfly to flap its wings and just erase the show from history. It was initially helmed, it was underneath uh, Lucille Ball's uh, production yeah. company. Yeah. Um, yeah. She was the one that really pushed for it to exist, if I remember correctly, right? At several points. Um, first time, she pushed for the first pilot to be produced. But she didn't actually know what it was, according to my sources. She thought it was a show about traveling USO performers. And so that's one of the reasons why she green-lit it. Right. But she was also important in having the second pilot green-lit. Because the first one, um, the cage was a bit too weird for a pilot of a TV show yeah. in the 1960s. And then they ended up turning it into like a using it as like a clip show in another episode later on anyway yeah 
just use it. I mean, that makes sense. Don't waste it. Yep. In the early days, they hadn't quite nailed down where they were going with it, with the the themes and how they were doing the show. Yeah, it took them a while, of nothing else, to kind of drill down the core trio of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Like, those early yes. episodes. It's much more of an ensemble show where you can see they're kind of getting their footing. And then eventually, like, okay, Kirk is the main character, then the two kind of secondary characters are Spock and McCoy, and then there's the extended cast. Yes. And that wasn't clear at the, at the start, because in the cage in their first pilot we shouldn't have kirk it had um pike and it also had the character that we know as, as spock was divided between the female first officer and spock, spock. and uh, spock was still there yeah still there but he wasn't characterized in the same way as he was an even worse haircut later. somehow yes he hadn't got his handle on the character yet and i think leon nimoy's uh, importance quite high in that in terms of like developing that character but according to Roddenberry, uh, and I'm not sure how Roddenberry is a very was very much a especially later in life he was very much about tooting his own horn and taking credit for things even though, like the show itself, the production of Star Trek was an ensemble endeavor, and Gene Roddenberry was crucial. He was a crucial linchpin, but he would also take credit for shit that wasn't necessarily his idea or his. Um, preference and he did claim that uh after they made the first pilot the studio was angry because it ended up going from uh lucille Lucille boyle's company to cbs and according to roddenberry the the suits were angry that he'd had too many women on on the ship i had the ship 50 percent men and 50 percent women in my first layout and the network said you can't do that and i said why not they said, well, don't you see it? We'll make it look like there's a lot of fooling around going on there. <laughs> we had a big fight, and, and I made them settle for 30% women. I think on the theory that 30% healthy young women could handle the ship. <laughs> I think that the way he describes this story is a mixture of truth, but twisted in a way that makes him look really enlightened and good. Yeah, uh, self-aggrandizement. I, I don't disbelieve that these suits in the 60s were like too many women and they did say that one of the reasons why they didn't want so many women on board the spaceship was because it would imply that all kinds of hanky-panky are going is going on up in space which amuses me i uh, thought that part of it too was that like that number of women like tested poorly with like women test audiences or some bullshit like that uh, th- this was shown t- to test audiences and the women in the audiences in those days. So th- th- women's lib had not been invented then, the word, you know, and right. female equality was not being talked about except for a few of us who happened to believe in it. And, and the women said, who does she think she is? I don't like her. That's possible, but that sounds like it could be an excuse. Like, that's something I could also, yeah. I could believe on one side, but I, could al- I think it's a bit of a combination of both. I know that the woman that played the first officer, whose name I've forgotten, she did end up marrying Gene Roddenberry when he just, just completely let his like his his first marriage just fell apart. That character in the like the pilot is such like a fun counterpoint to the character she later ends up playing on TNG. Wait, wait, who was who, who? What's her name? Um, she, play she played Troy's mom. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. I'm foolish. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, Lux- Luxana. Yeah, Luxana Troy. There you go. Yep, all right. That makes sense. Um, she, yeah, it's better in that role. I actually liked her a lot in the pilot. I thought that was kind of like an interesting dynamic. 
She's replacing your former yeoman, sir. Now, she does a good job, all right. It's just that I can't get used to having a woman on the bridge. No offense, Lieutenant. You're different, of course. It would have been an interesting dynamic, and like the thing is, like if that hadn't been changed, we wouldn't have had the the trio of like the Kirk, McCoy, Spock triumvirate. Yeah. But there Which might have been nice. something else. It's nice, yeah. but they do end up dominating the show sometimes. It's like, hey, I want a Sulu episode once in a while. I want a her yeah. episode once in a while. What might have happened if they'd kept her on as the, the taking the role of Spock as the super logical one? It might have ended up having um, Spock take the, the position of Bones McCoy, because initially the reason uh, Vulcan is called Vulcan was it was originally imagined as like a. A volcanic world that was very hot, which is why um, well, it's still Spock in there. I think kind of, but it's 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 much diminished. It was meant to be like, oh, this this alien oh, he's has hot attacked me or something. Yeah, and he's like, he can't. The Italian alien attacks him with a heat ray, but he's like, oh, my home planet is made of heat rays. <laughs> so nice. that would have been it. Would have been natural for him to take the role of the more emotional one, like the hot blooded, like much like Bones ended up being. And that would have been interesting. So if anyone anyone out there has any exo stock of those early seasons um, from the timelines where that just continued, I know it's quite rare and expensive, but if anyone has a, has a, like a torrent or anything, I'd love to check it out. Oh no, like go, universe hopping and seeing each of them, their Star Treks is always some of the most interesting shit because you know, you'll, you'll always get like slightly different sci-fi writers in the era. You know, like in our yes. timeline, we got like Robert Block, Richard Matheson, yes. uh, Theodore Sturgeon, Harlan Ellison. I've been hearing for a while that the episodes that H.P. Lovecraft wrote in some of the universes where he survived are pretty good. All the stuff that Lovecraft did after his death in our timeline, most of it's yeah. pretty good. And it's it gets a, most of the time it gets less racist, except when it gets more racist. It's a weird, yeah. it's weird how that works. Someone should it's write a thesis on that. <laughs> it's racist, but in that way where he's like, no, no, I'm trying to prove a point about yeah, the yeah. commonality of humanity. Like the one I saw, that the Star Trek episode that Lovecraft wrote was very similar to the one we got in our timeline with the like the black and white halves, but it was more fucked up. Like Two-Facey. I can't believe he called the race the Waterleys. I mean, <laughs> talk about on the nose. It was a different time. And a different universe. There's a whole tangent. I don't want to talk about, like, I've seen three versions of The Matrix with Will Smith, uh, one of which was good. So, I, that's, that's, we'll save that for our Never When slash Exostock episode. Yeah, like, keep in mind, like, a lot of, a lot of people are like, oh man, I wish I could universe hop to see all these things that, like, didn't get made. And, one, a lot of times they end up being crap, and two, oh, yeah. a lot of times the ones where they're good, different beloved movies end up being crap. Yep. Like most universes, the Matrix is just dog shit. And that's the funny thing is, like dog shit movies from our timeline are the ones that you want to look for in general. Like just well, yeah, like movies. the one where Wild Wild West wins Best Picture. Like I was in tears at the end of that. Oh, that was that was an amazing film. 
the that wild wild west and somehow they were still able to get like the giant mechanical spider in there and it worked it was incredible i don't know how they made this giant mechanical spider such a sympathetic character like a tragic figure even but it really added more to the movie but anyway we're on a tangent <laughs> Yes, it's easy to go on tangents with these things. I would like to do an episode fully just on Will Smith in different universes, but I don't think our audience is ready for that. Remember the one episode we did on the John Wayne different universes? We didn't do that. That was the other. That was our Never Win counterparts. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're splitting hairs now, man. Like we've only been doing this for like what a couple of years now on this platform. We're doing it for at least a thousand years in other platforms and throughout many different timelines like some yeah of our- some of our best episodes weren't even ones that we did so let's return from the alternate universes to our universe of star trek for simplicity's yep. sake yeah I-, I think you're going somewhere here and i am interested in seeing where the ship heads in terms of uh the collective consciousness and its influence over the culture it's very important and it has effects on the occult underground in two ways one in terms of just the sheer symbolic resonance Throwing Star Trek into any gutter magic always works. Like, it works for so many different things. But it's best used with... You know, when you have an objective, when you have... When your goal is something that concords with the philosophy of Star Trek, rituals and gutter magic works better by putting on some Spock ears. And that is both with TOS and TNG. Deep Space Nine is also quite potent. Voyager less so. Enterprise even less so. Uh, The newer ones, not so much. Lower Decks, maybe... But in terms of real symbolic... There's powerful paradox in that one, yeah. But yeah, it's, T- it's TOS and TNG are the most uh, symbolically potent and most useful in rituals. They're the ones that I've seen the most magical artifacts related to, seen the most like formula spells in certain like schools or rituals, they pop up. Tribbles, phases, uh, tricorders, like back... like. Back in the 80s, like, if you're in the cold underground and you had, like, a mobile telephone, it was either a car phone or it was a communicator. The interesting thing to me with all the Star Trek stuff is how it is kind of, like, the first big example of fandom. Like, fandom's always, always been around, but it was, like, the biggest focal point of a fandom up to that point, pretty much. Like, you talk about, like, the letter campaigns and stuff. Oh, the letter campaigns were insane. Like, when they first cancelled it, I think it was the end of second season, I believe. One of the fears I have for doing this episode is whatever I say, I'm going to get some shit wrong, and yeah. I'm going to have like angry trekkies oh we're going to talk about the difference between trekkies and trekkies trekkers as well but let's go into the fandom first the first convention in new york was just just insane like uh listening to the cast talk about it um like the surviving cast and like old interviews of the cast they had no idea what they were walking into uh i know leonard nimoy he referred to it as a like just a wall of emotional energy as he walked out on stage at the first convention and i know george takea was just baffled by it didn't expect it to be anything near anywhere near as big as it was so the cast didn't expect it and neither did the studio what makes me laugh the most is the fact that at the time cbs had a policy that every letter sent into cbs had to be responded to like individually oh God. so they cancelled the show to save money and then it ended up costing them several million dollars to respond to all the mail they got um, and they had to change Holy that shit. policy well this is before the internet like there was not that immediate like means of ga- gauging audience reaction right exactly but even even though there was it was before the internet there was a significant amount of organization like there were people waiting in the 
in the parking lot for like CBS executives to come out with signs and like I think it was it was mostly it was mostly in good humor but it would have yeah. been slightly intimidating uh, because like it would be something that they hadn't encountered in the same way before in that time well and yeah and that's Such like a- screening those Star Trek fan letters and shit I'm sure must have been like there are so many more layers of organization between like the creatives involved and the fan community back then compared to now where it's like hey if there's an episode of a show you don't like you can just send so many slurs at the actors on that show oh yeah it's direct there's a direct line to their yeah to their Twitter Twitter's great for that yeah. At the time, it wasn't like that, and it was a very unusual um, circumstance to have all these different kinds of people, especially one of the reasons why they didn't cancel the show initially um, was the fact that they were getting letters on nice letter paper written well from, like, people in prestigious positions. And so CBS, they want eyeballs, but they also want that, like, that at the time period, the TV networks they wanted those just the, the simple the eyeballs of the hoi polloi but they also wanted the the patrician um yeah. respect and they didn't think that they were going to get it from a silly sci-fi show and when they got the, all these letters very different letters from very different kinds of people it did sort of push them to go hmm, actually maybe we should like give these guys a bit more did that lead to season two or three Oh, I, I would have to check. Um, I think it led to season three. Okay, so that was a bit of a mixed blessing then. That happens. There's great now episodes in season three, but yeah, like that, that's not yep. an old problem. And that's not a new problem, but it, it happens today. Um, there's plenty of people who talk about how when Family Guy came back, it wasn't the same as it used to be, and um, all sorts of shows have that when they get cancelled too soon. Like um, a few shows in the more, more modern era, Rome, I know, had a massive like campaign by people to have a third season, uh, but they couldn't because it was all the all the actors were already booked up yeah. on things, and because Rome was very important in terms of setting the stage for Game of Thrones. So if there was more Rome, we probably wouldn't have got Game of Thrones. And knowing what we know now, that might have been a good thing. <laughs> I love those shows because it's like, okay, guys, how do we appeal to the broadest demographic possible? All right. Soap operas, but with violence and tits. I mean, yeah, everyone likes soap operas. I mean, nothing wrong with it. it everyone likes all three of those things. I mean, yeah, Shakespeare and the Greek fucking, the yep. oral tradition of ancient Greece. It's all soap operas. Well, there's something, uh, there's something to be said about, like, sort of the changes in technology that led to kind of the change in view. Because, like, before soap operas were, like, associated with, you know, retirees and the terminally unemployed because... The only time slot where you could run those sort of long-form serial storytelling and be sure that people were keeping up with it was in the middle of the day. Yeah. As we got, like, stuff like home recording VHS tapes and then later um, streaming, that sort of serial storytelling became a lot more accessible to the employed class and thus was able to gain further and further prestige. A lot of things that people criticize about like television-based soap operas are there for a reason like a non-american example i know with korean soap operas um the main audience for them are like working women people working in restaurants people working in shops and stuff that have the tv in like the corner of the room that's playing and they don't know when they have to be cooking or serving customers and doing anything and so the show 
ends up having to repeat itself because they're not like the audience is not necessarily playing 100% attention but they still want something playing in the background so they can pay attention to it and watch it while they have breaks yeah that makes a lot of sense and I think that's true of like American soap operas as well as telenovelas and other countries as well so yeah I can't criticize soap operas too much like it's not like you can't have a soap opera and also have quality like Twin Peaks that was a subversion though. A, a subversion and kind of affectionate parody yeah I, I agree with that I think that people look sort of look down on soap operas as an art form but like to go back again to like the oral tradition of ancient Greek prose ancient Greek stories like you know that there was like fucking hipster ancient Greeks who hated the hated Aristophanes really predictable, or like yeah and like the just it's repetitive and on the nose we get oh, he plucks his eye out again later yeah exactly people who are into videomancy and stuff and cinemancy to an extent know about the whole like the the usefulness of that in the, in the cult sense in a magical sense um things like oh oh that's convenient that they've got amnesia and their brother was the killer the whole time like that stuff is useful and it always has been going back to the like ancient times before like even before greece to like mesopotamia soap operas are part of that tradition speaking of like game of thrones and rome and shit like yeah those are prestige television but like if you look at the story devices that are being deployed in those shows especially to like keep viewers watching episode after episode they're the exact fucking same sure there's better dialogue writing and character writing involved <laughs> in, in, in the first four seasons yeah, it's not always in the first four seasons. <laughs> but the like actual like tropes and techniques, there's a lot shared and borrowed from just old, good old fashioned telenovelas and soaps. But this is why. Like even though like, those sort of shows they they go back to an old, old tradition, and Game of Thrones is part of that tradition. But to an extent, Star Trek did represent something new, something different, not something completely original. But it was a combination of things that presented something, a viewing experience that was significant at the time. The moral code behind it, the ensemble yeah. cast, like all kinds of they like all these elements, and the, the sheer influences had over the years. Um, I mean, it's, it's right magic ground in a million different ways. Yes, and something that I think doesn't get kind of talked about enough is like uh, Ahura's discussed plenty and deservedly oh. so of you know presenting a multiracial bridge crew like it's no thing but you know what i i'll tell you about um i've heard the story about uh martin luther king being a star trek fan like i've read yes. it a bunch of times but it wasn't until i i listened to an interview a recording of uh nichelle nichols talking about like being there i went to an naacp fundraiser and someone came to me and said, Miss Nichols, there's someone who wants to meet you. He's a great fan of yours. And I expected to turn around and see some young person. Uh, and I turned around into the face of Dr. Martin Luther King. And I was stunned. And he said, yes, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. And I said, thank you very much. I'm very happy about that. And of course, I'm leaving the show after this first year. And he said, you cannot. Just hearing it from her, I was like, it, it, it suddenly, I, the way she was speaking, like doing his voice a little bit, I could just yeah. 
I could, the, the, the the mental image of just like of Martin Luther King like Star Trek like it it made it so much better, <laughs> so much better. <laughs> and just the look on her face. Season two of Star Trek, especially yeah. the early episodes. Yeah, it's something I could I couldn't really appreciate just reading it in text, but hearing her say it made it be like, oh yeah, that's a great moment. <laughs> something I think doesn't get enough credit though is Chekhov. Like during the height of the Cold War, it's just hey, there's this Russian dude there. It makes me homesick, just like Russia. More like the Garden of Eden, Ensign. Of course, Doctor. The Garden of Eden was just outside Moscow. There were some theories or rumors or not rumors, but like they did say, Roddenberry did say that one of the reasons they put him in there was because um, there was rumors that Pravda had complained that the Americans hadn't included a Russian on their spacecraft um, in the show. Apparently that was not true, but I think to an extent it must have been true. Yeah, there's probably some truth there. Not exactly, but yeah. It was very important, like at the time, there wasn't that much in terms of those kind of like multiracial ensemble class or multi even cultural ensemble class on American television and even characters like Sulu was important and George Takei has talked about this at length um, although he's becoming increasingly pissed off uh, about what they've done I know that George Takei was quite angry that they had made Sulu gay in the movie the Abrams ones? Yeah, the Abrams ones. Um, I think he found it... I'm putting words in his, uh, into his mouth. Like just, uh, This is based on my uh, what I've seen on interviews with him. I know that two things really pissed him off. One thing was the fact that they made the character of Sulu gay when the character of Sulu wasn't gay. And just because, like, it was meant to be a tribute to George Takei, but it was presumptuous. Uh, yeah. In my opinion, it was quite presumptuous. You know, it, it's it's strange. George Takei has a very strong idea of what this character is. Yes. And there's yes. certain things that have been established with this character throughout the mythology, including yeah. I think that he's fucking married to a woman yep. at some point, and yeah. just be like, no, he's like, he he's gay. Like it, it does change the character. Since George Takei is an actor, like I could definitely see him thinking like, okay, no, like this is Sulu is a very different person from me. But I've still yeah. thought very heavily about who he is, and this yes. runs incredibly counter to what's been established. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, Sulu, as a character, yeah, it's something that George Takei worked on, put a lot of his heart and soul into the character, and for them to turn around and say, like, we're going to play tribute to your character by changing something very important about the character and have him be gay and played by a straight actor. Ooh, that, we're so woke. I'm like, that's, that's, that's the, the worst kind of wokeness. It's presumptuous wokeness. Which is, it's, it's insulting. For that sort of shit, they should be consulting with the original cast. Of course they should. Of course they should. They are from the sound of things. If they're doing it to like pay tribute or whatever to George Takei and his career, like you ask him if he thinks it's a good idea. Well, and I don't just mean for that sort of thing. I mean like in general, like just like nobody knows those characters better than the people that have been playing them on and off for like God. 60 goddamn years. Exactly, exactly. There's a great uh, anecdote that I read about uh, George Takei uh, when he was, they were doing that episode where, like, um, he had the, uh, what's the word, the rapier or the yeah. uh, switch, and he was sort of playing with it, um, <laughs> and then he almost stabbed one of the producers coming around the corner, <laughs> and the producer ran away. <laughs> because imagine, this is a time period um, not that long after, like, World War II and all the propaganda, <laughs> the anti-Japanese propaganda. They're back! Oh, God, they touched down. 
<laughs> he mistook it for a katana. One of the, it turns out one of the Japanese holdouts has been in LA this entire time. This is the long con. This is the uh They've been waiting beneath the CVS studios for <laughs> for ten years. No, fuck you, like 20 years. <laughs> yeah, this is... A, I forget the Star Trek was like the 60s. Okay, the other thing I was going to say that uh, George Takei didn't like, which I think... I, I, I It's probably not relevant, but I'm going to rant about it, is he was appearing on Conan O'Brien's show, one of Conan O'Brien's shows, um, during the time when, like, um, I think the sequel, the Abrams sequel, the one with Khan in it and Fucking he Benedict Cumberbatch's gun he did mention that and you could you could tell that Conan was getting like messages in his earpiece to like change the topic Ricardo was so quintessentially Khan right I mean Khan is uh, a Southeast Asian name right uh, East Indian and uh, Ricardo is a is a Latino and Gene Roddenberry's idea was you know to include the um, diversity of this planet and what Ricardo did with that part, I mean, he was powerful, charismatic, became iconic, both in the television version and the feature film version, The Wrath of Khan. And then to learn that he's cast a white English guy was, you know, <laughs> really shocking. I mean, because he, uh, Ricardo owned that part. Like, George Takei's basic position was that, like, Khan was a man of color he was an indian character played by oh, yeah a Mexican him being actor. him being sikh is like an important part of his character exactly and like why would you whitewash that character <laughs> like, it doesn't really. make any sense i mean that's the point uh, like part of the interesting thing about that character especially being made at the time is because the character had a, an ideology of genetic superiority but he wasn't white it made it they was made it interesting. It gave it a bit of edge at the time, and then fucking 40, 50 years later, having Benedict Cumberbatch play that character—it's just nonsense. And that might be because I'm fucking conspiracy occult-minded. I mean, I'm like, what was the significance of that? Could there have been a symbolic significance of them taking this character, a powerful, respected villain of color, and whitewashing them him with? Benedict Cumberbatch. Like, what would have been the objective behind that if there was a nefarious occulted reason for it? Uh, imagine, right? Like, this time they could get, like, an actual Indian person or Sikh yes, even fucking... in the role of Khan instead of just Ricardo Montalban. Hey, this is the swarthy guy we have as an actor. Just grab him. You want to sell some tickets internationally? Don't bother oh, yeah, about the Chinese from... market. Get some awesome Bollywood actor to play Khan. Come on, this is a slam dunk. You know, people in India go see movies, but they don't see. The, well, they see Hollywood movies, of course, but that's a well. And like that's thing, like villains are the perfect place for those foreign actors to the U.S. market to break out. And that's problematic to an extent too. But if it's a character that's like it's a villain, but. It's, it's like a, an iconic an villain, villain, right? Iconic it's an villain, iconic yeah. villain, yeah. He's not really, a, he's not any kind of stereotype. <laughs> Khan is Khan. Yes, it sucks that, like, your best roles in, like, in Hollywood as a foreign actor tend to be villain roles. Yeah, but, but, I mean, if you want to break out somewhere, that's the way to do it. And, you know, it's yeah. like, Javier Bardem has since gone on to do, like, non-villainous roles in Hollywood movies since then. Like, it's not as much of a problem as it used to be. Yeah. 
It's still prom. And, like, the other thing is, like, okay, if you're huge in Bollywood, and it's like, hey, I'm doing this Star Trek movie in Hollywood is kind of, like, a side thing, and then you just yeah. go back to Bollywood, that's not the worst career move. No, it's, not, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great career move. It would be, yeah, it would be fine. I don't, I'm not sure about the um, cultural resonance of Star Trek in India, but I'm sure it has some. People know yeah. it. People watched it. It would have been probably on syndication there as well, historically, and today. So, I, yeah, that would have been a much better decision. As much, I, I don't dislike Benedict Cumberbatch. He's a good actor, but... He just gets miscast in a bunch of shit, I think, is his problem. I really think that there has been an active campaign by a cabal within Hollywood to destroy the legacy of Star Trek. And you can see this in many ways. Very interesting symbolic choices. The casting of Benedict Cumberbatch to neuter the character of Khan is one, and that was possibly the first wave. I think, I believe that the Abrams movies were the first waves in a campaign to destroy the legacy of Star Trek. Star Trek, J.J. Abrams' Star Trek came out 2009. One year, that was one year before the release of the Klingon opera, Ooh, at the the Hague, that was came out in September. Okay, that's at the Hague. <laughs> September tenth, twenty ten. Wow. All right, and Star Trek the first the first Star Trek film, the first Star Trek the motion, the JJ Abrams Star Trek. Well, I thought it was okay. It was got good reviews. I thought like for what they were trying to do, it was fine. Um, but then we have Star Trek. Which one was the one with Khan? Into Darkness. That, that, yeah, that's Into the Darkness. The second one. Into Darkness. That comes out uh, twenty thirteen. And then we have when did uh, Discovery come out? Sorry, it it has to be something to do with this fucking this uh, opera, this opera. Like because this was this was someone's cause. This was a cosmic objective. Someone that wasn't going to this invitation wasn't going to Konos. It was going to the invisible clergy, and everything since then. And I'm not talking. I'm like. There's plenty of good things about the new series, plenty of good things about the J.J. Abrams movies, but certain elements clearly designed, and maybe it's in the production side of things, clearly designed to nerf the symbolic resonance of both TOS and TNG. And I have to say, there must be an occult underground reason for this. Just, like, look at the sheer number of Star Trek fan series and films that are out there. It's fucking yeah. incredible. And, and like, what, what are we, what are we sitting in right now? <laughs> this is another space. It's the same. Sure, thing. Like, people sure. are doing this, but like, I know. Like, I'm thinking, like, some of these have like the original cast involved, like New Voyages. Yeah. Like, people have for years have been living Star Trek. Like, it, like in that documentary. There's well, people I think who, what the, I think what fundamentally is the deal here is that you had the fandom trying, like, especially after like. Enterprise and stuff, they're kind of trying to claim the show for their own, and the powers yep. that be really wouldn't allow that, even at the price of just putting out something that is vastly lower in quality. Though, uh, to be fair, I've heard the more recent episodes of Discovery have gone better. Like, now they're in, like, the three th year 3000 or something. They went, like, way far in the future. I don't mind the third season of Discovery because it is it does feel like a it just feels like a different sci-fi show does it feel like Star Trek still there are bits which feel Star Trek-y in a way that's occasionally on the nose but yeah. I find well so is the original I, I, let's be fair it's different it's a different nose I don't know it's something okay. it's something but I think the first season was definitely an attack on the concept of Klingons because they changed them so much and Klingons did change from TOS to TNG where they changed 
according to Roddenberry's vision of them and his, uh, his developing ideas. And yeah. if, in the documentary Trekkies, um, they did have a short bit of the... a short uh, segment on Klingons, uh, like cosplayers, um, or people who live the Klingon lifestyle in the... I think... Yeah, I think yeah, like, Klingon lifestyle. Like, is it actually yeah. a lifestyle? I think so. There was a woman who was talking about how that the Klingon group that she was involved with did a lot of community work, did a lot of social work, helping people in various ways. We are the largest ship in the San Diego area. We do a lot of community service. We go and visit abused children in hospitals and um, we work fairs and we're having a miniature golf tournament in two weeks. And Dressed as Klingons? Yes. You play miniature golf dressed as Klingons? Yes. Yes, we're, we're um, going to donate the money to charity. That's sort of like the usage of the power, which helps people in real terms, but it also has real symbolic power. And I have to think that it's something like, like the, the Klingons that were presented in Star Trek Discovery first season, they were a, a, a completely different species. They didn't uh, match at all. And Alex Kurtzman, he just came out and said like, oh, well, it's impossible. There's just so much Star Trek. It's impossible to keep up with all. We have to like change it. Oh, That's fuck off. That's some bullshit. Yeah, fuck he, he, can, he can fuck off. Yeah, he can fuck off. Jesus this is made, like, I, for the longest time, I've just been like, Alex There's Kirsten's people that like asshole, watch this I'm, show every night and they have for like the past 30 years. And I know you said like, they say like, Occam's razor and never ascribe to malevolence what can be adequately explained by incompetence. Yeah. But I'm also aware of what the occult underground's like, and Occam's razor is a tool used by the sleepers to keep. Well, the veil I mean, down. like, <laughs> speaking of like occult power and fandom, like Star Trek is like what really led to cosplaying blowing up as a thing. Like, it, it, you know, it's something that you'd see in fan communities beforehand, but. With this fandom of something visual with a costume aspect now, so many people in Vulcan ears and blue jumpers and yep. shitty haircuts. So yep. many of them. And, like, it was a part of fandom that brought in a lot of women. And yep. what came along with that was the origin of slash fiction it has immense occult power. I, I know of two different rituals that involve Spot Kirk yeah. smut fanzines as a component. That is true, but I've found that a lot of the time, especially with like um, the sort of rituals that you'll find around, like there are people that will just add a bit of Spot Kirk fucking just because they want to it, it, it adds a bit of spice yeah. regardless it's it's one yeah, of those yeah. classic ritual components anytime you're looking at a ritual if there's any kind of like sex magic involved try the ritual first without the sex because like about six percent of the time it works fine or like if, when that doesn't work like the other like 30 percent of the time effigies work fine i'm not i'm not saying that people shouldn't like, well, yeah. Like, let's be fair. Like, a lot of those rituals aren't. A lot of those rituals are a lot more fun when you have the sex in there. Of course, that's that's natural. But it should be comfortable for everyone, so it should be taken by a case on a case by case basis. And a bit of ritual fucking never hurts. Not always. Most of the time, it doesn't hurt. Depends on the ritual. But sometimes it does. Yeah, sometimes it does. Especially when you're trying to like make a. Um, unspeakable servant like keep the sex magic out of the, that please the, the results could be terrible it, it, a lot of times just having like two people there is enough like sodomy is a very ritually powerful act yeah like that's what like especially like stuff with like very old resonance like that which is why spock kirk slash fiction helps so much there's like the yep. dimension of the like repression unmasked both yep. in and outside of 
the object. Yep. It's just, you know, the, the act of fictional characters having sodomy, which is classic yeah. ritual component. It is. There's the ears. Well, we could like, like lean into, because we live in a very, in a humanocentric occulted universe, it's very interesting the position that um, species like the Vulcans and Klingons take and what they represent because everything is human but the Klingons and Vulcans they represent alternative types of humanity because in terms of like if there were if there are extraterrestrial races out there there's no reason that they should be humanoid no reason that we should have like a frame of reference with them I'm not saying that, that we don't but yeah. Vulcans every species in TNG and TOS every alien species is to an extent a type of human and I think that's what gives the the different races in Star Trek such power in a ritual sense because they are a way to be inhuman while still remaining human or becoming a part of humanity and that's well, yeah, that could be explored that's more. one of the reasons that the slash fic is so ritualistically oh, yeah. powerful is it's the yeah. unity of humanity in the other in a way that subverts that other and expands humanity. It humanizes yes. the other. And you'll see this a lot in terms of the way... I've noticed this a lot with, in Star Trek with um, the way Vulcans and Klingons talk about themselves. They often start sentences with a Vulcan does not or a Klingon does not. Klingons do not pursue relationships. Vulcans never bluff. A Klingon does not grieve. Logical Tuvok doesn't cry. Klingons do not laugh. And yeah. so they they are defined by the things that they don't do compared to humans, rather than the things that they do do that humans don't do. Which I find it, it, it and you see that you see that in um, fantasy as well with elves and such. But it's like if nothing else, it's a good way to do exposition. <laughs> it is. But it, it means to me that like what Vulcans and Klingons represent is a, a type of lifestyle, a type of like being, a, a way of being a human that is separate from like Kirk-style rough-and-tumble humanity or, or Picard. Yeah. Like humanity is, humanity is represented in all its infinite diversity, but the species, they're planets of hats in a way. And that's not like they they will twist that. They will. I know that Deep Space Nine developed the Ferengi in a very interesting way and made them less of a one-note species. But each. But what are the Ferengi if not like just capitalists? They're not like that different. They're not inhuman in their thinking. They're just business-oriented in their thinking. Like these all represent archetypes, and that's a really yeah. interesting. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah, the the Ferengi are the merchant as a yeah. race. Yep. Um, Klingons the warrior. Klingons the warrior. What would the uh, what would the what would the Vulcans be? That's interesting. Um, ooh. I feel like There's that is an logic. archetype. I, it's like the scientists would be my go-to one, but the way that logic, like Vulcan logic, is portrayed, isn't always very logical. It's very much that like the Vulcans seem to be extremely good at rationalizing their de their decisions. It comes across more as specific cultural attitudes combined with extreme discipline as opposed to like actual logic. Very much, which so. is it, kind of what it is, honestly. Like, yeah. I mean, they straight up say like, "All right, we've constructed these extremely like." overly complex basically at this point nonsensical rituals as a way to compartmentalize all the parts of our biology that we consider non-rational and dislike like warfare or sex 
Like anything yep. that's non like those non rational aspects are still there. They're just deeply buried. Yeah, they're just their cultural attitude is to deeply bury them. Well, that's interesting because you could compare that to like attempts by totalitarian states to create a new kind of human. I'm thinking of like the new Soviet man. I'm thinking like um, policies that the fascist countries had. Um, Though it comes across like, as more like broadly consensual, I guess. Where because like comes, I think this comes like, across, yeah. But they, well, they, there was some yeah. big like civil war that spurred that, if I remember correctly. There was some big civil war, and they're like, "All right, what? what yeah, was we're going to be all of, logical now. That's that's our thing." I do know that they explored some of the ideas of their cult of logic in Enterprise. They explored the ideas that it was interpreted in different ways in different time periods but i'm just thinking like the claim is that they were an overly emotional species that almost destroyed themselves and so they adopted logic or what they call logic as their like guiding principle like confucianism in china and i'm just wondering like there must have been re-education camps it had to have been oh yeah there still might be some holdouts there was that woman um who became famous um for dressing in her Starfleet uniform to attend the when she was a juror in the Whitewater trials. Nice, um, yeah, fucking she, nice. I didn't she, know about she, that. She, That's awesome. And, and she, she basically, yeah, she says like, "There's no difference between my uniform and uniform anyone anyone else doing the civic duty. Anyone else who served in uniform before, like, I want to be a, I I want to present myself as a Starfleet officer at all times." And it's like, yeah, you can put on a uniform. For football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. I don't want my officers to ever feel ashamed to wear their uniform. And so I went to a civic duty. What we do is community service. I was performing my civic duty. I wore my uniform just as any other officer in the military would wear theirs. Good for her. For a while, she was like the most recognized person in Alabama because she was the Starfleet officer. Um, and they were like telling her, like, what if the president comes? And she's like, I will dress in my Starfleet uniform. I will dress in my Starfleet best. She did say that she, when she went to conventions, she would usually um, be Vulcan. And she did have a very Vulcan style affect to her. And I think there are probably more people out there in the cult underground who live according to both Vulcan on and Ferengi and other um, codes um, they're restricted they're re- and I think this sort of thing exists beyond that like any kind of living according to a human created non-human species which has got a code that we can understand opens possibilities of for in terms of ritualistic behavior and paradox and symbolism that can be used to make magic and this is something different from cinemancy something different from videomancy uh, because well, even though things things come from, sometimes they come from movies, sometimes they come from books. Like uh, it's I a think thing. it's a nice way because like when you, when you live an avatar path, the universe has a way of kind of being on your side a bit, right? Yep. And this is a good way to accomplish that. It's a good way to start well, walking com- on those paths and not necessarily realize it. But the universe is like, hey, yeah, no. This dude, this dentist that's uh, acting like a Klingon all the time? Yeah, obviously, walking the path of the warrior. I'm going to do your solid here. It works really good with warrior because I know that people who live the Klingon lifestyle while also doing community work, like, easy to be the Klingon warrior against, 
like poverty or against whatever like it can be used for good for good purposes same with the Vulcan might be the lawbringer actually maybe hmm. yeah they're very it's more of a moral code it's an ethical code like they're yeah it's they, not they like they a scientist thing it's not like a rationalism in pursuit of something it's this is a code that I live by and other I set an example for by doing it it's it seems sciency and rational it's like rationality but it's more like pseudo rationality is that well, yeah. like, like that's that's what most people that say they're rational end up being in practice that's true like there's the uh, the trope of the um, uh, what is it like when someone like is a skeptic in a TV show but like too much to like a ridiculous yeah. extent the scully. when they've already the scully. seen the scully but the scully scully was a bit of a subversion because um, she whenever they did an episode of the X-Files where the case involved uh, religion, especially Catholicism, uh, Mulder and Scully would swap places because Mulder sure, was skeptical sure. about religion, but she was a Catholic, like a fairly... Um, well, I mean, if we want to go into Roddenberry, there's actually a, um, a cult TV show he did, but one of the interesting things about it was that it was about investigating a satanic cult, and this was like a few years before the satanic panic happens, and the two characters are classic skeptic and true believer pair and this predates x-files by like i don't know i think like 20 years specter it was called specter specter i haven't seen this well roddenberry's five shows specter was the most sophisticated it's the story of a criminologist played by robert culp who travels to england to do battle with demons both real and uh imagined oh this was a, this was a pilot that never got made all right yeah uh interesting all right well like, if so we're like, Roddenberry, into, like, Roddenberry, there's a lot. On top of all these other tropes he invented, he invented the Mulder and Scully. Yeah. You know, without the extreme sexual tension. That's a, that's a, that's almost a surprise. Scully, especially as the seasons go on, the skeptic routine starts to be like, okay, how much shit have you seen, Scully? How yeah. can you continue to just... You fucking saw Sasquatch, dude. She's an archetype. Um, yes, absolutely. You know. The skeptic is definitely an archetype. One thing that's interesting um, about the Vulcans is the on YouTube. I was listening to the Inside Star Trek. It was an album that was released in 1976 um, with different interviews and um, and things uh, like recordings of George Rod George uh, Gene Roddenberry rather talking yeah. to like interviewers and stuff. And they had a, an interview with um, Sarek um, talking about his son Spock and the process by which Spock was born. And what took me aback about this, because it was recorded in 1966, right. um, was the way that Sarek talked about the difficulty of Spock's birth because he's just like, yeah, before, before my son was born, every, every attempt to have a half folk and half human child ended in miscarriage and he had to be born through cesarean and like it's it was like i was like what what is this like spock's mother amanda is an extraordinary woman and spock was the result the first human vulcan mixture no not the first but the first to survive as you must know an earth vulcan conception will abort during the end of the first month the fetus is unable to continue life once it begins to develop its primary organs. The fetus Spock was removed from Amanda's body at this time. First such experiment ever attempted. 
His tiny form resided in a test tube for the following two Earth months, while our physicians performed delicate chemical engineering, introducing over a hundred subtle changes we hoped would sustain life. At the end of this time, the fetus was returned to Amanda's womb. At the ninth Earth month, the tiny form was again removed from Amanda, prematurely by Vulcan standards, and spent the following four months of Vulcan term pregnancy in a specially designed incubator. The infant Spock proved surprisingly resilient. That makes sense. Okay, so to confirm they go into the difficulties of the birthing, not so much yes. the conception. I think he does talk a bit about the pod farm. I can't remember that as much. But if you take the madness which happens to your people at the time of pond fire, then add to it the extraordinary strength of a Vulcan. Ordinarily, an Earth woman could not enjoy that. If she survived, she might be severely injured, both physically and emotionally. Regarding that... Roddenberry, I will not paint a word picture. Well, yeah, that's the thing I was, like, thinking about that episode with, uh, fucking Spock. It's like, dude, you're sort of, like, you are proof you couldn't do this with human woman. Like, there's, like, that nurse that is, like, all but, like, outright said to be like, yeah, dude, she wants to fuck Spock. She's right there, dude. Well, that's, that's an interesting... You don't need to go on uh, this, like, fucking... Like, I get that he's married, like, betrothed and shit. You don't need to go on this whole fucking days-long side trip to Vulcan just to get laid, dude. And he doesn't. He doesn't even, he doesn't even get laid. He ends up getting uh, perfectly satisfied by killing Kirk. And that's that's an interesting aspect of the Vulcans, too, that they're so repressed in a way. And it, yeah, uh, it's not... It, it the the, the Ponfar thing isn't so much, uh, like... In so much a libido thing inherently. It just seems to more be, like, an animalistic... But you see that in, like, sexual stereotypes, or at least sexual archetypes of, yeah. like, in both men and women of a very... It's actually more often in women. It's, like, some of them are very prim and proper and put together, but not in the bedroom. In the bedroom, they go wild. Yeah. This You see this with Spock. Spock. The reason Spock became such a huge sex symbol and such a big part of slash fiction was um, because of his partially inhuman nature, and that carries through down to... Uh, commanded data in a different way um i in the trekkies documentary there's a bit about um a woman who calls herself a spiner femme very much obsessed with brent spiner has had like photo albums just filled with uh pictures uh, one of the things i love about fucking tng is how they were like all right second episode we need to establish the robot fox as soon as possible Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With Natasha, yeah, Just of course. Second yeah. episode. All right, Robot Fox, that's out of the way. Let's... What's what, What's the line? Um, you are fully functional, aren't you? Of course, but... How fully? In every way, of course. I am programmed in multiple techniques. Like, looking back at the data of Tashia, like, sex, it, it's extremely problematic because Tashiara, I believe, was under the effect of something that increased... Of, like, space alcohol just, that was turning everyone yeah, horny, yeah. But, yeah, and but on the other hand, Data's a robot. <laughs> I mean, Tasha in general is not done justice and is a very problematic character. And like, her backstory is: uh, I joined Starfleet to escape from rape gangs. The word "rape gang" gets used too far too many times in the first season of that show. A lot of trauma in her background. She was space drunk against her will and she fucked Pinocchio. And there's that later episode where Data like that's the thing, like he never fucks after that. 
Except maybe the Borg Queen. Like, there's that one episode where he oh, starts yeah. a relationship to kind of, like, see, like, hey, sure, let's see how this goes. And, like, you can, it, it's kind of implied that they never actually, like, do the deed. I was looking over a book um, entitled Drones, Clones, and Alpha Babes, Retrofitting Star Trek's Humanism Post-9-11, written by a woman named Diana right. Relk. Um, interesting. Um, very much like a, a sociology uh, feminist reading of Star Trek. And I didn't go through uh, all of it because it's a whole thing. And I didn't agree with everything, but she does bring up some interesting ideas uh, relating to the Borg. Like, when the first Borg appeared on the Enterprise, Q was like, he made a hit a line, he was like, Interesting, isn't it? Not a he, not a she. Not like anything you've ever seen. Which, in, like, retrospect is like a weird thing to say in, like, the 24th century. To be, like, surprised that it's a genderless cyborg when there's plenty of species that have different concepts of gender. I think they've already been introduced to an extent. Well, remember that one episode that's with Riker? Oh, yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. care about true love. Technically, this is a dude. I can't fuck that. It was handled interestingly, and especially in that in that early time period, and it was handled very differently to how they introduced the non-binary character in uh, Discovery. Uh, they have to basically come out to Stamets, and... Part of me is just like, what? They're in the tw- they're from the twenty third century, and now they're in the thirtieth century. Like, well, yeah, God, there's a lot of assumptions odd. being made here. There's a lot of assumptions being made there. One that why would they have to come out? Well, it would be way better if they like if they were just already established. Yeah, I don't. They give a shit, and the reason they wouldn't give a sh- like that's assuming that like our, our current conception of gender, like at least in the West, is very based around like identity, and that is assuming that like the notion of, like, gender identity and all that shit is still something that's, like, meaningful at that time period. And to an extent, I understand it in terms of... If you look at TOS, it's very much informed by the sexual politics of that era. Yes. And the same is true of TNG, especially with how horny the early seasons were. One of the advantages that TOS had was that it could deal with issues of the time, like social justice, justice issues of the time, behind like a layer of, what's the word for it, metaphor, a layer of obfuscation, which allowed them yeah. to get past well, the that's senses. Like, that's one of the great things about speculative fiction in general. That's like kind of yeah. always what it's been used for. Yeah, I'm just not sure degrees. that like having the non-binary character having to do this elaborate coming out in the 30th century is all that no that doesn't make sense on several levels like Like, that's either not a really oh they're non-binary and we don't give a shit or like not like we don't really have like a notion of gender in this though like to be fair like let's let's be real like the culture that earth is presented with in star trek is kind of always just america but with more technology and it did it reflects the america of the time in many ways um so maybe a lot of my like dislike of Discovery Picard comes down to it's just a reflection of the zeitgeist because TOS came out of time of optimism with the space race but also lots of problems with this, and like lots of struggles with the civil rights movement and T- and TNG came out another another time of it like it started getting good as America entered the fully automated luxury space capitalism of the 1990s. Bill All right, here's what I think we need to get another good Star Trek. And bear with me. We need Uh-oh, a Chinese okay. Star Trek. Oh, great. Are we going to be... All right, well, they... Fucking... Uh, this goes back to... Uh, back well, to no, Game have, of Thrones like, with D- 
D&D. I'm so scared that D&D are meant to be the showrunners in the American adaptation of the th- three-body problem by Liu Cixin. Oh, um, and I, well, like, that's I'm like, thing. If no, you read don't. Chinese science fiction, it's so much more optimistic than American yes. science fiction yes. is right now. Yes, Chinese science fiction has a lot of the advantages of 1960s American science well, fiction. Well, if you like reading things. their stuff, reminds me of like silver reading Silver Age science fiction. Reminds me of, like reading sure. Asimov and shit, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 Yes, that very yes, ideas first, character second sort of stuff. Yeah, especially the Ulysses. He's like, yeah, he's. Yeah. There's lots of bits, especially. In the, well, the second book I think was translated badly, but he is very much an ideas first kind of writer, and I'm I'm yeah. there for it. It's it's good. Um, it's good to have I'm, that stuff for science fiction because we don't get that yeah. much much of that stuff. It's so it's become so literary, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But it's often at the cost of those interesting ideas. Because like, yeah, no, sure. sometimes you want to have writers that you know aren't the best stylist or character guys that still throw some really just off the wall shit out there. And yeah. well, honestly, I think what's kind of taken that space nowadays. In the West, at least, is role-playing game writing. It's a, <laughs> we should say that game on our role-playing game related. Well, no, podcast. I don't. Yeah. I don't mean that as a negative thing. It's just like the role-playing yeah, yeah, yeah. game medium. No, you're right. Its first and foremost goal is to inspire other creativity, style, and like good prose. All that stuff is secondary. It's not to say that stuff can't be in there. It's just kind of ancillary to the goal, which is inspiring yeah. a good session of. Playing pretend. I agree. Um, I would say to an extent with tiny science fiction, like they have the advantage that American science fiction had because they can dodge censorship to an extent by placing things far away in the future yeah. on another planet. But they are still like like everyone else writing in China, they still have to deal with a lot of necessary self censorship which makes things difficult and it makes it difficult to imagine because remember and we wouldn't have the the day a a chinese star trek wouldn't have the slash culture which is a shame it would have the slash culture but occasionally well it would be underground it would be underground underground. and and occasionally 14 year olds would be sent to prison for like violating public morals (laughs) which in a way is even more badass you're having to like in dark alleyways exchange your Kirk Spock slash fic. It would be a good campaign concept. I like the idea of Star Trek with Chinese characteristics, but I have some... Well, yes, there'd probably there'd be uncomfortable imperialist subtext, but so does... That's there in the original Star Trek, too. That's there, and I, I, can't, I can't really criticize... I wouldn't be able to criticize it because there's so much in the original Star Trek and TNG, which works as a justification for American cultural imperialism and some elements of American foreign policy and so if there was a Star Trek with Chinese characteristics it would it would have to do the same thing we'd notice it because we're outside of it right yes we'd notice it more it would be more obvious I I, I would love for it to exist I would say if there's a Gene Roddenberry in China I hope that they make something like that but I don't think it will be it could. I, I think that that could exist. That could emerge quite easily. Yeah. And it would be very interesting. And it would be something... I think it, it wouldn't be Star Trek, but it would be something more akin to Star Trek than I think the current Star Trek shows 
Ah. I can't think of how long it's been since I've read, like, an optimistic science fiction story from the West. Cory Doctorow stuff, kind of? But even then, that's really tempered. I also just don't like Cory Doctorow stuff that much. Because he's not good at characters, but he tries to be. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. The importance of, like, science fiction-like Star Trek is it because it presents an image of a, you know, a utopian future where rationality and humanism wins, that is a huge juxtaposition with just infinite apocalyptic scenarios that we've been yeah. getting since the 80s onwards. And there's nothing wrong with that. I like me some some, some Waterworld. Um, but Who doesn't? Who doesn't <laughs> like that some Waterworld? The most... the in, in the occult underground, the most important post-apocalyptic movie. Uh, but you have to read between the lines. Ke- Kevin Costner is an immensely occulted figure. There's a lot of, of power in him that yes. I'm not sure if he's aware of or not. But I think he's oh, slowly like, coming like, to awareness of it. Like all the best like major occult figures, he's not aware of it. It's natural. He is strongly walking the archetype path of the Kevin Costner. <laughs> That's right. It's a, he's going to ascend as a new archetype. And we're going to have to deal with the, uh, the, the sect of the naked Costner at some point. I think that we're using... You know, incorporating Star Trek symbolism, iconography, and characters into rituals, it's best to do them when you have like a, a laudable or forward-thinking, optimistic goal in mind, because that's what Star Trek represents—an uh, yeah. optimistic future, luxury uh, space communism, but also American imperialism. But only the be- only the good parts about it. It's interesting. We're sending our best. Well, but they're flawed and things. But no, that's well, yeah, even our best are flawed. But the problem I have a lot with the newer Star Treks, I have the problem with Picard, especially because the portrayal of the universe, the Star Trek universe in Picard, is really not optimistic at all. It's like people. I mean, Deep Space Nine has shades of that. But, but that was that was good though. I think the key was difference the war, is, Yeah. Exactly. Like that's that that is you are stuck in like one of the worst places possible. And you still get the sense that they are trying really hard to do their best there. And, and this, is, this is why Cisco punched Q in the face and said, I'm yeah. not Picard. Like that was the point. You hit me. Picard never hit me. I'm not Picard. Because I like D Space Nine, I think it, it serves a good purpose. And it didn't counteract the messages of Star Trek overall. It was just showing that, like, the the Star Trek mission wasn't always easy. Yes, exactly. It's still it's still fundamentally the same message. It's just showing this is when you're stuck having to rebuild instead of being the front-facing diplomatic end of it. This becomes a lot more complicated, but it's still worth pursuing. And also yeah. it comes from a place of just a much stronger knowledge of the setting and the show's history than yeah. I think Discovery and Picard do. That's not like intentional or malicious a lot of the time, though I think you disagree with me on that. I think like it just comes down to like a lot of the people that are writing on Deep Space Nine had been writing on Next Generation for years beforehand. They knew that really well. It reminds me of... Um a lot of like are people on like people who are working on Discovery and Picard a lot of people working on that uh, full of passion love Star Trek a lot of people working on it I, I don't I'm not going to be like they're all evil no um, the actors I don't have a problem with the people behind it I don't have a problem with I think there's a, a few Kabbalists in there just screwing it up for the rest of them but it reminds me a lot of um, uh, what's his name um, Matt Damon's friend Ben Affleck 
Ben Affleck, yeah. The, the way that Ben Affleck, who clearly loves Batman and is a good Batman, has, because over the course of those movies, got more and more visibly sad-looking, is yeah. sort of how I see things happening with... And that's, that could be part of it. Like, the... The what? Well, that's another fucking good example of the, what I'm looking at. This evil cabal in Hollywood that's just nerfing all the optimistic characters. Look what they did to Superman. Like the what's his name? The actor Henry Cavill. Fine, looks like Superman. Good actor. I liked him in The Witcher. Fine, but that's not Superman. That's something else. It's the same as what's happening with Star Trek. There's someone in Hollywood trying as a cabal. Just the cynicism. The cynicism that's permeating fucking everything. It, yeah, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it's just completely mundane, but I'm suspicious. I'm I mean, suspicious. anything involving Hollywood, like, occultists are opportunists, fundamentally, right? Yeah, there's someone, there's people there that are trying to do the shit for very mundane reasons. And then there's a lot of people involved that are like, oh, no, I'm totally behind this for far more esoteric reasons and willing to my influence and money behind it to further that cause. If I'm right, and if there is um, some cabal trying to do this, like just spiking all the optimistic, basically representations of America that are optimistic from the past, what's the what's the end game here? What's the point? Like, well, I think people nowadays especially are far more conscious of America's shitty aspects than they ever really yeah, have. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, but then this but is good and all this the is... optimism doesn't help that well, at yes, all. Yes, exactly. Like, it's throwing the baby out of the bathwater. You don't just say, like, hey, this optimism was always a sham. You know, we need to replace it with tempered cynicism that is sufficiently woke or whatever. It's, okay, no, this represents the best that we can do. We preserve this good bits, and then remove all the shitty stuff that is there, too. But here's my question for you, Torrenson. What does all of this have to do with War Star 7? Alright. <clears throat> War Star 7. Only Mitchell can help us now. Those were the first words, allegedly, of the first episode of a science fiction show entitled... War Star 7, which I now suspect was something more like TNG. It was a remake of something that happened earlier. I don't think, I think it might have been a War Star back in the 70s or something, or the 60s, okay. and it, they made it. But that's show. gone too. That's gone that's all, too. It's all gone. It's, it's all just gone. This, the only like remnants I could find of this show were in Break Today um, in 2002, and this actually matches up interestingly with my theory about the anti-optimism cabal. I'm not sure if it's related. It could be. It could be completely unrelated. Uh, but the character, how it, what part was retained was in this character of Mitchell Voorhees. He was a member of the sample crew, given, called Rubble Rubble. Uh, a sample crew of Max to be used. You know, like a GM would just throw, and throw them in the game if they needed another, ma another group. And he was a videomancer, self-taught videomancer. Uh, whose fetish show was this War Star 7. And it appears from the description of it, it does seem to an extent Star Trek based, but also seems to be maybe more akin to Battlestar Galactica. Like, even the name, it sounds like something. It's not so much a Trek, it's a war. It's a War Star. It's like Star Wars. And I wonder if it had anything to do with maybe it just War Star, Star Wars, maybe there's something to do with that. But... What we do have is interesting. And I'm thinking what we could do, like, if people were running a game 
using the themes that we've talked about today in in their unknown armies campaign or if they were developing a character based on these sort of themes um in the same way that all mart often pops up i use it in my work and i know kate's used it in hers and i like that aspect of things and i think warstar 7 could also be used in this sense and maybe by doing this we can probably we can you know part the veil a bit a bit and figure out exactly which of the Berenstains took this out of our memories, our collective memories. Okay, so I think this is some fucking Nelson Mandela shit, right? Could be. I mean, I don't know if it's Cleomancers, I don't know if it's Nelson Mandela, who's both alive and dead. The Schrodinger's, um... Yeah, that's the thing that people don't know about the Mandela effect. It is actually Nelson Mandela that is doing it. Probably for good reasons, but... Well, I think he did it to, like, avoid death. That's the thing with, like, changing the timeline it's like lays potato chips it's once you pop you just can't stop it's really once you do it once it's really hard to stop yourself from doing it the most minor inconvenience well I, i've heard of um adepts doing this before or like in thaumaturges doing this kind of schrodinger's quantum immortality and it's it's difficult like like when it comes to like helplessness and yourself gorgeous like being dead some of the time and alive other time it, it really fucks with people's heads yeah if, if Mandela's behind that sort of thing like we could do a whole episode on, on the machinations of Nelson Mandela through time no yeah just one time like his kids were like hey hey daddy read me the uh, one of these Berenstein Bears books and like god I'm so fucking tired of these alright they're Berenstein now it's, that's how I'm getting some extra mileage out of them I'm assuming that it was the the Hossa translation of the Berenstein Bears books so that might have I don't know I don't know how, Ber, Ber, how Berenstein is is translated into Hossa or pronounced so maybe that has something to do with it what we have is a few bits of information from Mitchell's background we have character names we have a couple of things that relate to villains that they face and some of the technology that they use it, because it's in the background of the character it's sort of it's not like collated I've collated it a little bit the reason I think this show might have been part of a franchise is because it does mention that he has a lot of memorabilia considering that he saw this show as a kid and Mitchell Voorhees he was still I think in his late teens circa 2002 when he was included in Break Today it suggests to me that this show came out in the 90s and I'm not sure how much memorabilia you're really going to get and I'm thinking maybe that this show was an older show well it was a remake of something that existed yeah. before. Yeah, no, that seems that makes sense. It could be that there's a lot of Warstar Seven memorabilia out there, and it has, in the same way, Exostock and Neverwin merchandise has use. It might be hidden away somewhere. There could be a collector, a powerful collector, who's got a bunch of Warstar Seven stuff. We don't know. What do you want to cover first? From what I can... well, yeah. So, what have you been able to dig up about this thing? Like its history. Like, how does this kind of relate to all that stuff we we're talking about? Like the history of Star Trek earlier. Well, this is the thing. It's what makes it so difficult. It's um. I have no, it's... I've received different claims from people who like people have said that they can sort of remember it the same way I can, but I'm getting different inconsistent stories. Someone remembers like a puppet show in the eighties, which I'm not sure hmm. about. So, do you um, mean like sort of like Thunderbirds sort of deal? Yeah, like a Thunderbirds type thing. But the, the way they know. were describing it, it's like they were doing it was basically the Warstar equivalent of like the Star Trek animated series. Uh, okay. that it didn't do very well 
brief thing, but I couldn't find much information about if if there even was an. Hey, series. don't forget that fucking the the animated series is the one that had like the N Larry Niven episode. Yeah, I'm not shitting on the animated series of Star Trek. Yeah. Not shitting on. Oh, There's some good stuff in there. Uh, I think it has about yeah. the same hit rate as the original show. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it they didn't end up going that direction with uh, yeah. War Star Seven. But I think with most of the information I've been able to get, and I've been following most of the leads that have panned out have been leads that are from Break Today. Uh, and I'm thinking that maybe it might be more difficult to get the original War Star or War Star Three or whatever. Maybe it was War Star an earlier number. I'm not sure. But I've got character names. We have the Captain Santiago Church, and that's an uh -huh. interesting name to me because that's a very I love that name. That's a great it's, name. It's very religious, and that'll pop yeah. up a bit later. I mean, it's also very non-American, which is interesting. Yes, very non-American. Santiago, it, it seems more Spanish. It, it's, it's a male Spanish name deriving from the Hebrew name Jacob. It's the brother of John the Apostle, St. James the Great. That's where it came from, originally St. James and Santiago. So it's two very religious names, but this is an old... St. James the Great was one of the Twelve Apostles, but Church has a very... It's a very interestingly um, institutional surname. And this interestingly ties into something we might be talking about in the future, because they have um, included as possible subtle indicators of the clued in nature of the writers in the occult underground were elements including the Archons. The Archons were a pantheon of immaterial aliens who could possess humans and grant them powers. Hmm. There was also the Sandmen, an alien race dedicated to euthanizing the entire galaxy, and the Niamreg, a melancholy immortal doomed to wander the stars forever. And I don't need to tell you who, what the Niamreg represents. Yeah. It's pretty obvious. There's a rumor that Dirk Allen sold at least two script treatments to the War Star 7 story editor. And that might be very useful, especially for anyone who wants to try to recreate the lost um, 333 manuscript. I know a lot of well, weren't you telling me before that, like, Philip K. Dick had a couple episodes that got, a couple scripts that got turned into episodes? There may have been one PKD script treatment that was developed in the original show, if it existed. Yeah, and then yeah, there that's was what an I mean. Old, and then there was an old script that wasn't adapted, but ended up going into War Star 7, the 90s show. Um, don't know what happened to that. And that might explain the presence of these Archons. What was the original show called? Was it just War Star? I don't know about the original uh, 60s, 70s okay, one. Okay, interesting. It might have so been War Star. Lost. I mean, yeah, who are the seven in the title? Like, what's that a reference to? Is I actually think it might relate, because I have discovered, like, there's been people who remember the Archons as uh, a threat within the Warstar 7 uh, show, who claim that there was, they were more like a, they were like Q in a way, they were quite powerful. The names are like Yildabal and Yao and Sabal, and they're all very on-the-nose Gnostic references. Yeah. And there were seven of them. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with that. And they were associated with extrasensory perception, religious awakenings. One thing about I heard about uh, War Star 7, it's similar to Babylon 5 in some way, because they were just, like, described as like an earlier precursor race. It seems that War Star and War Star 7 
ironically held better to Gene Roddenberry's uh, prescription on psychic powers being used, except for Troy. Yeah. And, and others later but the Archons in Warstar 7 was were an exception to that What's what, that's what made them dangerous to an extent and I wonder whether the name Santiago Church which is sounds f- quite Catholic and having the bad guys be Gnostic has anything to do interesting with it. okay so it's it's not it has Gnostic themes but like anti-Gnostic that might have been tied into it or or maybe it was Gnostic masquerading as anti-Gnostic, which is another possibility, especially if you Okay, can yeah, it. kind of sneaking that in there. Like, sort of the... Kind of that strategy where, like, if you think about it while, you realize, like, the main cast are actually the bad guys or whatever. I know these Archons seemed like... They sound like kind of testing figures, if you get what I mean. If they're antagonistic, then, like, and presumably this godlike, then presumably they could just destroy the cast or whatever. So the reason that they don't do that must mean something, right? They have to have another objective because in a lot of it they were causing they seemed almost agents of chaos than anything else which is an interesting like so they do sound a little bit like the shadows in the babylon 5 to an extent yeah like they're they're testing the main cast rather more so than actively trying to destroy them and what's interesting about these characters is they all kind of represent sort of non-human elements in the same way we're talking about the Klingons and the Vulcan okay. because the, the other characters that I've got records of from Break Today are Una uh, described as a bipolar alien female with a hyper-intelligent but standoffish and frigid winter form and a hypersexual but impulsive and hot-blooded summer form we have Sergeant Sergeant Buck who's described as a genetically engineered warrior Robo Alpha Lambda 4 aka Ralph a mechanoid engineer they all work for something called Star Force, which is clearly based on yeah. Starfleet. Um, yeah, but yeah, more yeah. Star Force sounds, it suggests it's, um, Starfleet was always a military organization masquerading as a scientific one. But I think Star Force is more mask off. Yeah, this sounds more like some sort of um, forces in there. So like some sort of task force, more like a commando yep. unit than like a... Like an actual ship. Instead of the Federation, they have the Galactic Alliance, which does sound like something that people just would just make up without thinking too much of it. But it could be interesting because it does suggest to me that because in Star Trek, there's not going to be a fucking Galactic Alliance because most of the galaxy is not explored yet. I believe in War Star Seven that like it was more of the galaxy had been explored, and there were a number of powers that covered more of the galaxy, but there were different elements and i say this because one of the threats the sandmen an alien race dedicated to euthanizing the entire galaxy so the main threat is something coming from outside of the galaxy and something the archons might be that too perhaps and what's interesting about the sandmen is they were from what i can find out they were a kind of nanite swarm not too dissimilar from the replicators in the stargate series but what I found fascinating from what people can remember of them was that they had an ideology that was very much Thomas Ligotti, very much like existence is a cruel joke 
They're anti-natalists. They, yes, they're anti-natalists on a, on a universal scale, on a cosmic scale. Their plan was to, whether they were intelligent or whether they were just like a, just doing it automatically, they were a nanite swarm sent out to euthanize, not kill, euthanize the galaxy. Yeah. Because from the episodes, there was an episode known as Encounter at Croatoan, which is really on the nose. Yes. But it suggested that they the sandmen were most nefarious they attempted to wipe out colonies and wipe out population centers without with while causing a minimum of suffering which makes them a very interesting antagonist because it wasn't sure how intelligent they were whether they were automatic or whether they were directed yeah. it could they could they could have been if there was a species out there in another galaxy which um, adopted like anti-natalist extreme anti-natalist views uh, they may have wiped themselves out sent out these nanite von human probes to and waited like after millions of years they arrive at a different galaxy and then the galactic alliance has to deal with them and meanwhile we've got these archons running around who we don't know why they're doing that and it's interesting to have those two very different there's agents of chaos that are like the Q and then there's these euthanizing nanites from outside of the galaxy and then there's fucking this Comte de Saint Germain as a three-eyed alien wait what? well the Niamrig oh shit okay I see I thought you were going for the wandering Jew well that's part of it I mean the wandering yeah. Jew who do you think that, who do you think that was it was the Comte that does seem like something he would do just show up at a crucifixion and kind of laugh at it and uh, eat some popcorn yeah and like ah oh, shit went to the wrong crucifixion yeah. Of course, the th third eye, too. That's that's required. It gave him an interesting look. It was like how um, he had, a, like, a bluish-greenish skin, the Niamreg, uh, three eyes, and really leaned into that, like, kind of old-school alien look, but it it worked within the series because it was only one of him, and he was, you know... he was uh, Just a human <laughs> person with different skin color? That sort of look? Body pain and simple prosthetics. Classic. It's because he was kind of like depicted as a kind of, uh, you know, kind of a melancholy yeah. character, but with great power and knowledge. It was an interesting juxtaposition to have that very, like, 1950s, 1960s alien design. With the, Do you mean melancholy yeah. and like the Traveler from Star Trek sense? Sort of. Yeah, a bit. Okay. Oh, okay. So that's something that, that melancholy. You know, it's like the comp. The comp gets sad when he was yeah. around. He was sad. Um... I'm not sure that his way of dealing with that problem was the smartest, but, you know, it's understandable. Well, endless existences wear on you after a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just why you purge your memories every now and then. Just keep them somewhere. I mean, just, yep. like, you, you just want to have... Keep things fresh. I, I purge my memory of canned tuna all the time because I like canned tuna. And it's just like, what's this in my cupboard? I'm gonna eat this. I purge oh. my memory of canned tuna regularly because I don't like canned tuna. You know, I I think the fact that I remember what it tastes like uh, makes my life just that that less works. But then there's the problems like, oh, I've never had canned tuna before. Let's give this a try. And every time it's like, oh fuck. No, I do this all the time. I, I'll give myself little presents. Like I'll buy something and then I'll purge my memory of buying it and then I'll find it later. I'll be like, ooh, I bought this. Thank you, me. It's 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 up. It's it's called self care, Frank. You need to do this. You need to look after yourself by purging your memories. So what I'm kind of curious about this is like, okay, there's a lot of interesting like subtext here. Not really that sub though. Like this is pretty like fuck. Archons are the name of the aliens. Like this is pretty uh. There up might in the there might be a good reason why we can't remember the show very well because it's a lot. Were you able to find anything about like the creative team behind this? Very little. 
very very okay. little. Like I, 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 people talk talk about Dirk Allen, but like in terms of names, who who was behind it? Was yeah, like who's the Roddenberry of this? Exactly. I have no, I have no idea. But there's some things you can we can kind of um, surmise about their like thought patterns from what I can find out from the characters and right. some of the tech, some of the tech that they've got. Star Trek has phases and disruptors. Um, their equivalent in Warstar Seven was called the Pulsator Pistol. It was um, it's said to be able to synergize the hyperstitial fields. I don't know what the hell that meant. Oh, fucking hyperstition! God damn it! I actually think it comes down to uh, it being stitial, um, the suffix pertaining to standing or positioning. But beyond that, so I think it was some kind of like uh, weapon that worked. You know, by accessing different dimensions of reality, possibly. Interstitial is a word I found, which is an inter- inter- intermediate space located between regular lo- use floors in hospitals and laboratories. So that's inter. Uh, sorry, stitial is like a floor, like a level, yeah, uh, a platform. Yeah. So it could, like hyperstitial was beyond that. Like, so you could imagine if there was something, if they did involve elements of like the multiverse or different planes of reality. The hyperstitial fields synergizing the pulsator pistol might be something beyond that, and it would be interesting if that because that's some really high tech shit, at least yeah. conceptually. And the idea that they were using that to just shoot people is interesting. Okay, so it sounds like any relation that this has to like CCRU shit is pretty coincidental. Maybe. I mean, did, was the show like British at all? Did it like come from, or is this coming out of, like Hollywood? Uh, this was definitely an American show. Okay. I, I, I'm not entirely sure. There are people that say it might have been at least partially an international effort. Uh, in the same way that Lex, I believe, was a Canadian. Yeah, yeah. German Lex was like Canadian Australian or something, right? Lex was Canadian German. Farscape was American Australian. There you go. Yeah. There's things like that. There might have been, but I'm getting I, again. I get different reports from different people. Um, that would make sense to the Gnosticism, actually, especially during the '90s. That Gnostic stuff was in Britain, like that was huge. If it was related to Gnosticism, it might have been linked to that wave of Gnostic films in the late yeah. '90s and early 2000s. It might have been part of that, and that would actually tie in well with the timeline of Mitchell Voorhees getting into it and the record of Ritual Voorhees being retained within Break Today. Actually, I think I'm remembering where... I think Kurt 93 did, like, the theme song for this. <laughs> Kurt 93? Who's that? Kurt 93 is... Um, like, they, they're kind of coming out of the industrial, but also, like, the neo-folk stuff of, like, Bryn had going on in the 80s. And, you know... Unsurprisingly, with the band's name, they're heavily influenced by, like, occultism, Crowley, and all that shit. How can there be joy when the whole world is burning? Actually, that, that that follows with what I've been I've been hearing. I've heard a lot of people talk about how having an industrial musical score was something that people remembered. Uh, I know that yeah. Mitchell Voorhees had a formula spell called Captain Church's Fight Theme, so he would use the captain's signature fighting moves, and he would uh, see there you go instead of his struggle, and he would get rips in his clothes and red wounds and all this dramaticness. Um, 
and that in it, so it was very much like Kirk fighting the Gorn, but with an industrial theme instead, which interesting distinction. Yeah, there's there's a certain theme or a tone to that kind of music that carried on into the show. And that I could see sci-fi to, working with that, yeah. Yeah. But of the time period, it made it quite distinct. And I know that from what I can hear, that the show did have a similar problem of, for, of Babylon 5 in terms of being well-written, but with just dog-awful uh, special effects. Yeah. But I heard it was a little bit better with uh, Warstar 7 because the style was darker and more inspired. Like, it was a bit more, you know, industrial is what I've heard. Yeah. Um, you, you can hot a lot when when, you, when your show's color palette is a lot darker like that. It, it does help to like si- hide certain special effects stuff. It's just, yeah. Like what I'm imagining here is kind of like Dark City is a space opera, basically. Yeah, to an extent. And what I did sort of get in some some insight was what people could remember about the characters. Um, right. Santiago Church is like what I got from Santiago Church was. It was hard to say because people were comparing him to Kirk, comparing him to Riker, comparing him to Picard, comparing him to Han Solo, but like in ways that didn't really make sense. Uh, in ways that seemed like he was like all men to all people in a way. Hmm, interesting. But, but he came across as more authoritarian in my discussions than than any of the Star Trek captains. More actually, the the closest one is probably Janeway. Um, the okay, way his character was portrayed, which is interesting to me. But I did get more information about the side characters Una is an interesting one uh, with the winter form and the summer form uh, what I've heard is that in some ways like people considered the Una's race uh, the Kohol people who didn't like the show considered the race to be a ripoff of both the Vulcans and the Klingons at the same time uh, because <laughs> they facilitated between I believe that they had like a planet that rotated slowly or rotated like suddenly um, yeah. And so their winter and their summer was like half, like not like it was years of, it was like Game of Thrones, like years of summer, years of winter, and they would vary. And the winter version of their species, the winter government was very conservative, very um, concerned about keeping what they had and keeping it protected. Well, the summer government was aggressive, expansionistic, and raiding and things like that. And apparently, this race they, in, in some ways they were like the Vulcans and the Romulans but at the same time sounds like they're but, kind of going for like a Fae thing yeah a little bit of Fae but because Yuna was in a, in a way similar to Kling, like to Worf as being an unusual uh, member of the crew uh, a member of a, a it was like it was like having a Romulan on the bridge more than the, yeah. more than Worf because I believe differently to Worf she was not raised by humans or anything she was straight up just a Cahol there was a theme that I've heard from several people that, uh, well, she was the chief officer, she's chief science officer when she was in her winter form and chief tactical officer when she was in her summer form. And so she had like a deputy, deputy science officer and a deputy tactical officer. They were two of her three romantic partners in the show. Polly Amory <laughs> played a part of this. She had a um, okay, but like it's it's not played for like as a love triangle thing. It's just like oh yeah, no, no. she's they're all cool. That no, no, yeah, huh. it's, it's 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 Una 
only summer Una. Remember, she was she was hypersexual yeah. but impulsive. She had three civilian partners: a male human, a female human, and some kind of shape-shifting alien that I haven't been able to figure out. While the winter form was portrayed as asexual, which is very progressive for the time, but interesting. Yeah, that's weird. That's yeah, aromantic weird. and asexual half the time, and hypersexual, but in a in a what was apparently a portrayed as a fairly healthy polyamorous relationship but still became still had enough drama to be the b-plot in a few episodes oh yeah i'm sure i'm sure the uh summer form outfit must have been something to behold oh yeah it was very much if you've ever seen um that terrible uh show gene roddenberry's andromeda where they have the with uh, kevin sorbo and they have the uh, computer hologram that's just unnecessarily sexy, even though the actress is fine and the, char- the character of the computer is fine. It's just okay, like, but that character is in Star Trek 2, Seven of Nine. Yes. There's, there's definitely. Seven of Nine has some great episodes, of- but it is very funny to me that's like, all right, what sort of person do we get for the Borg? Yeah, this is get the, get the, get the sexiest Borg and. and yeah, the that sexiest summer- Borg. Get, bring me the sexiest Borg you can find. And that. And that decision somehow led to the election of Barack Obama in 2008. Wait, According what? To, you don't know that link. Um, I do not. Link, Jerry Ryan is the name of the lady who played uh, yeah, Seven yeah. of Nine. Her husband uh, was the... Maybe it's not the link, but in terms of butterfly effect, it has a link to um, her. Her husband was Jack Ryan, so the Republican <laughs> candidate for the U.S. Senate from Illinois. Um Oh, interesting. Their divorce records became public in 2004, which included allegations by Jerry that he'd pressured her to have public sex in swingers clubs in various cities. And this forced him to drop out of the race, which forced the Republicans to recruit former MSNBC host Alan Keyes. And Alan Keyes was just demolished by Obama, uh, which set the stage for... And we don't know, like... It's interesting that there's a weird sort of tenuous link. I know how that shit is in comics, where it's always like, oh yes, the race that's uh, on the hot planet, where everyone wears bikinis all the time because it's so hot. What's interesting about this is the fact that the character of Una was kind of portrayed as if she was two different characters, and yet they were the same. Yeah, how do they deal with that on, like, the starship? Is it, like, just kind of she changes forms whenever the plot needs her to? I think, to an extent, it is um, predictable uh, because it goes alongside the... It, it follows the orbital mechanics of her home system. Okay, so... they know so what she's going to turn. There's, like, some sort of biological clock happening there. It's not actually yeah. tied into heat or something, right? Yes, but she's when she's in a winter form, she's better as a science officer in a summer form she's better as a tactical officer so they've they've adapted for that so she's always uh second in command but what her responsibilities are varies depending on what form she's in one thing i liked was the fact that um they implied heavily that San- that uh, santiago church who was unlike Riker and kirk quite sexless even though he was considered he was uh portrayed in a very like typical like macho action adventure sci-fi hero type but he was fairly sexless, but he was implied to have a crush on Una's winter form, which is an interesting, interesting, and it became like a, a subtext of something. I and mean, like, yeah, even Janeway, even Janeway gets it. She makes her dream man of the holodeck in those like medieval 
<laughs> Those medieval fantasies. And she got uh, down and dirty as a salamander at one point. Yeah, this is true too. Picard isn't as uh, lucky in love as uh, Riker and uh, Kirk, but like you, you know, we we still see him have his relationship. He, he had Beverly Crusher to an extent early on, but that didn't. Develop well, much, Beverly Crusher, uh, there's that archaeology lady. I think if Gene Roddenberry had stayed alive and stayed involved, that Beverly Crusher Picard thing might have been developed more. Well, it like it's a running undercurrent, and just the kind of where it seems to go is like, okay, we both respect each other too much, and this is too fucking yep. complicated for us to really make anything more of this. Uh, yeah. But so it's it's a running undercurrent, but just kind of more there subtext than text. It's similar to a will they won't they, but not as I know it's better. I it's yeah, it's not even a will they won't they. It's just kind of like a all right, it's 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 a nice little character to mention there. It's more like a we could. Yeah, exactly. We could. It does increasingly get discarded as the show goes on. It is kind of implied that uh, Captain uh, Santiago Church is sexually repressed, which is an interesting connection yeah. with the... Uh, if if he is a representation of, I would say, Catholicism, Catholicism or, or, or perhaps not Catholicism, but like pre-Council of Nicaea sort of... Um, Christianity. Christianity. Like the, it's it's Alright, so a more direct yeah. Gnostic link. So then what maybe, does um Maybe. Maybe. How does this other character um tie in with the Gnostic themes then? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's only Gnostic themes, but it could be Oh my god, no, I, I, I know exactly what this is. I know exactly what that is. It's a reference to Thunder Perfect Mind. It's this poem that they found in the uh Nagamadi manuscripts, right? Um and it's it's implied to be like a divine figure, but it's obviously speaking from like a woman's perspective. And it, like the repeated motif throughout it is paradox. It's paradoxes. I'm the whore and the holy one. I'm the wife and the virgin. I'm the mother and the daughter. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, I am more in peace. I'm the one who is disgraced and the graced one. Give heed to my poverty and my wealth. Like that's yeah. that's pretty on the nose of what that's supposed to be a reference to, I think. Yeah, well, don't you mean, uh, is this the Sophia? <laughs> kind of? Um, it's, it's ambiguous, it's ambiguous. Like, there's not a specific figure that's supposed to be, it's just implied to be this divine woman figure of some sort. I mean, like, there's a lot of stuff in the Nag Hammadi manuscripts. It's not just, like, Gnostic stuff, it's just, like, fringe Christianity in general. And there's some, like, there's some, um, mystic Judaism stuff in there, too, I think. No, this is perfect. For I am knowledge and ignorance, I am shame and boldness, I am shameless, I am ashamed, I am strength and I am fear, I am war and peace, give heed to me. This is Una's race, the Kohol. And the speaking of and which, Kurt94 has an album with Thunder Perfect Mind as a title, and one of the tracks is the vocalist, uh, David Tibet, reciting this, reciting this poem and then putting, like, kind of industrial stuff in the background. I think you've cracked part of this case. That's amazing. All right. I didn't think that Una had actual Gnostic reference, but now you've, you've changed my mind. Okay, so yeah, just, just that's just further evidence, I think. So then you mentioned something about a robot. Oh, there is a robot. Oh, wait, wait, before, before we go on the robot, there's okay, a, okay, a okay. little bit more about uh, Una I want to mention. Um, in the first okay. season, there was a subplot, uh, like an S, like a, what's the word for it? Uh, more like a conspiracy sort of subplot going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where it was revealed because uh, the history, interestingly, unlike the Vulcans and humans in Star Trek, Humanity and the Kohol in uh, Warstar 7 had a history of warfare before they became allied. So not part of a federation, they were allied with each other. And it was the summer government versus Earth for centuries, it's implied. The conspiracy, it's revealed that 
actually the winter government had been orchestrating it all along and they were trying to do it again um which is an interesting twist um hmm. because like they, they were the fun. ones who, who were representing themselves as the you know like defensive diplomats. peaceful yeah yeah diplomats and that it was them that was goading the because the summer because they were, the summer government was very much um what's the word for it um the kind of personality not choleric was it choleric? Uh, I don't know the four humors. Yeah, I, I, I know again that, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, the bloody, the blood, the, the, the when the blood's up one. So I think. That's I think it's just. It. Um, I think it's just blood. And her, her uniform in her summer form was blood red, and her skin was like had a blood red tone to it. Anyway, there's a lot to that. I think your gnostic uh, link is solid. So it sounds like kind of the theme here is that it's. These different characters are kind of representing different aspects of pre-Nicene Christianity. Perhaps, in a way. But how do we link this in with the other ones? Well, yeah, I don't know anything about them. So, yeah, you said there was a robot and some... Genetically engineered warrior. Yeah, genetically engineered warrior. Uh, hit me with the robot first. I'm always a fan of those guys. Robo Alpha Lambda 4, okay, a Ralph, which yeah. is a silly name. But it, it, it's apparently it, it's a sort of name that... Um, sounded silly at first but became less silly as people got used to the character and yeah. it, it sort of suited him after a while and he had a he's an interesting sort of counterpoint to the uh the character of data he could make comparisons uh because yeah. they're, they're pretty naturally he was uh yes but unlike star trek uh there were other mechanoids intelligent artificial intelligences in uh war star 7 but what made Ralph different was that he was um, powered by vacuum energy and had theoretically immense godlike power levels, but when they were exercised, they caused a drastic increase in entropy in the local area. So whenever he hmm. exercised his power, like things would just start to fall apart. The material universe would fall apart around him. And the, in order to safely interact with the physical world, he had to usually keep his level of intellect and power comparable to that of a human genius. Which, that could be Gnostic. Okay, who made him? Yeah. Ah, the person who made him, his creator, he's the equivalent of Dr. Sung, uh, yeah. was, was, was a Dr. Sukomo, whose plan was to become immortal basically his plan was to up upload his consciousness into his creation he was considered dead because in the creation of ralph the research facility was destroyed by a uh, release of vacuum energy um they it which destroyed the planet um and they found ralph uh, basically in the wreckage similar to data in some ways but the interesting thing about Dr. Sukomo is he would appear in uh, Ralph's mind in the same way of... This reminds me of somewhat of the uh, Battlestar Galactica with the... What's her name? The Cylon. Um, yeah. The, the Lady in Red, yeah. Which is also a cult as hell. Yes. What was interesting is that from what I heard is a lot of people... I actually got a bunch of information from people who could remember it and had like problems with the show. And one of the problems with this doctor in the early part of the show, he was criticized for seeming to be, to exemplify regressive stereotypes of like nefarious Asian villain, like a yeah. Fu Manchu type person. But he transitioned from a, like sort of like a one note villain chewing up the scenery and fucking with uh, Ralph's mind to like a more nuanced and tragic figure who continued to chew up the scenery. And he sort of yeah. got, he went from 
he went from this is problematic to this is problematic but too awesome not to like sort of kind of thing yeah. was, as <laughs> as his character became more developed it became more about him and less about like the stereotype that he might have been born from if he was born from that at all well i mean that theme like you that's not like that whole theme you described with him is gnostic as hell like that's yep. sakomo sounds like a shit of demiurge for you man trying to imitate the gods immortality creates and like maybe uses some sort of divine spark or something Yes. That must maintain its own ignorance, otherwise it will overwhelm everything. But what's interesting about Ralph is because it seemed to like link into some like possibly some golem myths because but that's like with anything. Well, uh, the anything the, the, the Greek robot. lettering is interesting. I doubt that's yeah. coincidental. Like no, it, ha- it can't it can't be coincidental. I try to look into that lambda. F- I'm not sure. I'm just yeah. Not I'm not sure, sure like but- alpha lambda would mean or anything like that. I mean, you know, Alpha and Omega, of course, but no, that's that's very different. Well, what's interesting is the character of Dr. Tsukomo, who at at some point is like, he's implied to... The reason that Ralph can remember Dr. Tsukomo is he's not actually a mechanoid. Well, not really. He's not an artificial intelligence. He's part of Tsukomo's mind. But that's also kind of... And that's interesting. That's also Demiurge as hell. Demiurge as fuck, yeah. And as the show goes on, possibly due to the increased, like, variations in the budget, but increasing budget, is in the early show, he pretty much resembled a store mannequin, but developed more human characteristics as he went on. And people thought that was just weird like budget there might be budgetary reasons for that but there might have been some deeper no that definitely sounds very symbolic one person told me that he saw the cliffhanger of the second season just before it was cancelled apparently the cliffhanger was a revelation that ralph wasn't not only wasn't he a mechanoid like not 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 only wasn't he an artificial intelligence or even a computer program at all he was an entity of self-interacting dark matter being held and kept within a stasis field by <laughs> Dr. Tsukomo. <laughs> of fucking course. So yeah, Gnostic, oh god. Yeah, that's... Holy shit. Wow. Alright. Um, yeah, that's, uh... That's hard to deny. All right. So, what about this uh, genetically engineered warrior? Well, it, this this one seemed to me to be one of the less interesting ones. But I don't know. I'll give you what I have of him. He he reminded me to an extent in his, in his backstory. It's similar to Khan, as we were talking about before, in terms of like he was found frozen in a ship because he had been designed in the late twenty first century for warfare uh, between the European Union and their rebellious Martian colonies. That's an interesting beat of piece of politics and projection to put in there. The EU would be pretty new at that time, wouldn't it? Well, not that new. Not that new. Or at least the Euro, uh, I think. Yeah, no, it's more the Euro was new at that time. Yeah. And this is why some people say that it was a partially, like, a a German-American or German-European co-production, because the character of Sergeant Bach was someone who was closer in time to the 1990s and kind of represented more of a an in for the viewer he was like the kind of the everyman but at the same time okay. he was a, a, gen- a genetically engineered warrior who with a with a schwarzenegger-esque accent but not exactly okay. the same was he kind of like khan in that he's supposed to be like a, you know a, a great man like like there's a lot of napoleon or alexander comparisons to khan less so he he's more of a foot soldier more of a foot soldier, more of a fish out of water 
but there okay. was there was implications of him in some ways being representing an older form of humanity but was still ahead of you know the 19 the 1990s yeah he was brave uh he had volunteered for the testing of a near light speed drive uh he got lost in space and they found him centuries or millennia later and he became inducted into star force he had like a militaristic cyberpunk-esque aesthetic all right his role as the confused german or austrian gene warrior on the spaceship was an excuse to bring in exposition because he didn't yeah. know a lot of shit because he was from the the deep past they didn't want him involved in anything but he had def- he had defended the war star 7 from an alien threat and it's never spelled out what he did or how he did that but that's what gave him his commission because he technically wasn't even a citizen of the galactic alliance he was a european yeah. union citizen and the european union didn't exist anymore but he was brought in so i don't know there's less gnostic themes with him but he's interesting you know there's I think the themes I'd be pulling from him is he's sort of like, he's the magician in the tarot sense. And and being the audience surrogate parallels us in this aspect. He's the one who's being inducted into all these mysteries. He's the outsider. And like, from what you're saying of, um, of Ralph, he's also like genetically engineered, right? He's oh, biological. Built. He's, yeah. Ralph, he's Ralph biological. is biological. He's okay. not biological. He's uh, mechanoid. He's me- fully mechanical. But then it's implied that the me- the mechanoid is just a shell over, you know, dark okay. matter. Okay. Entity. There we go. Yeah. There we go. I got you. I got you. So it um, depends on whether you think a dark matter entity counts as organic, which it might. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of a different category. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. I'd say like he's supposed to be the magician, the scholar who is becoming familiar with all this stuff and learning to be a part of this world. I mean, like, the the stuff with Ralph makes me uh, think that any symbolism here, especially that skews Gnostic, is pretty intentional. I think so. Captain Church is the more, like, patriarchal side of the church at the time, and, you know, like, the what would become the Catholic and Orthodox churches. Una's the more, like, feminine and esoteric side of the church because like that's of like christianity because especially in like that pre-nicene era there is a lot of references to god as a being that transcends gender or has very feminine aspects this was one of like the big ways that christianity at the time brought in a lot of women converts because comparatively there were sects that were less patriarchal especially in like um Sort of Greece and those areas. Yep. Which were then with the Council of Nicaea, like a lot of that was like bringing, making Christianity more orthodox and set in stone and also specifically putting things under like, all right, Christ said that it is a woman's job to be subservient to her husband, that sort of thing. It seems, it doesn't seem like there's like a consistent message that they're going for. Like it's directly representative of anything. It's just like, all right, here's kind of a grab bag of Gnostic themes. Well, I don't know because we do, because we don't have access to the whole thing. It's, it's hard to really tell. Yeah, it's hard to really put this together in context, exactly. But yeah, this definitely sounds interesting. Like from an occult standpoint, I can see why a lot of uh, Dukes and um, I'm, I'm forgetting the politically correct term that we have nowadays. Um, oh, check, checkers and charges. Yes. Charger, I remember, yeah. I can see why a lot of checkers would be um, would be into this. Absolutely. Yeah. And why yep. there would... 
There seems like there's a lot of power here. I could see why they... Why someone would want to keep this on the down low. Some sort of demiurge figure, perhaps, hmm? Trying to suppress important spiritual knowledge in this 90s sci-fi show that was cancelled after two seasons? I mean, wait a minute. It might have been... Shit. Well, they need to make sure there's not a third season, of course, right? Well, okay, wait a minute. This this came out, so we know that it still existed. It had to exist in 2002, or else it wouldn't make sense to include this in Break Today. So 2002 okay. it existed, and 2003... <laughs> yeah. There we go. That's one of the Holy things shit. they cut out. Holy shit. Who was it? we cracked it? the it, case here. And this is the... So it was the cop all along. He didn't like how he was depicted. I don't have blue skin. What the fuck is this? Yeah, know, this, is, this all comes together. It all comes yeah, together. Yeah, no, so this fits together what, real nicely. But there's a War Star 7 hole in the universe, uh, yep. from what I could get a guess. It's there been might be some other spaces be, left over, though. There could be. I mean, at least they usually don't get I mean, cleaned it, up as well. I mean, it's, it's finding them, and they might be hidden, or they might be abandoned. Uh, we don't know what happened to... Mitchell Voorhees. I do know because the first words spoken in the pilot were only Mitchell can help us now. And I haven't been able to find out who they're referring to in the show. Because the Mitchell that they're referring to in the show is not Mitchell Voorhees, but this is what helped make him into a videomancer. He would interpret like unnatural events he saw in terms of technobabble, which were is not Were you able uncommon. to figure out the first name of the genetically engineered warrior? No. Could have been Mitchell. Mitchell Buck. Yeah. Mitchell Buck. That makes sense. Mitchell Buck, yeah. Now, what ties this in to me to Star Trek and how Warstar holds like Other than like all the aesthetics they're drawing from. Yeah. The noble stimulus for Mitchell Voorhees, and I'm I'm basing this is this is more theoretical, this is based on just what I've got. His noble stimulus is the future. He believes in a better yeah. world, and those that people could if they thought about the ramifications of their actions, they'd help make that better world. But on the other hand, his rage stimulus is stupid people. When someone displays ignorance or mental density in front of him, he loses it. And I'm like, yeah. this this is a, this is almost like, to some ways it reminds me of the, no, the, uh, the noble optimism of Star Trek and Gene Ronberry's vision of the future. In other ways, it does sort of remind me of like a, like a Gnostic hipster mindset, you know? Yeah. Not being yeah. able to deal with these people. You and just so don't maybe, get it, man. You're a muggle. The, you're yeah, a, no, there's definitely parallels there. And that's that's interesting, too, because what you described in the show, it sounds a lot darker than Star Trek. So maybe, like, something that happened during the show is during its runtime, it kind of gets more hopeful. Maybe it's more of the uh, the hope against the darkness and, like, rage. You know, like, hope despite. Like, I know that one idea that I've always wanted to try to run with is, like, I've just heard Kenneth Height's description of his campaign, which is, like, uh, Star Trek, but in the Lovecraft universe or something like that. Yeah. And the only... I don't know anything about it, but the only way I can think that of that is working is to have the the optimism persevering despite the indifference and malevolence yeah. of the universe. And I think that would be an interesting paradox. And I think that's probably something that existed within War Star 7, because... There's these, ar these arrogant Archon gods. There's this euthanizing Nanite swarm. It's a lot of dark stuff. And, yet... and it like, turns out there's this huge political conspiracy and all that, but that's the first season, right? Yeah. So first season is resolving those sort of like worldly bickering yep. and then moving on to these more transcendental problems that are trying My to My understanding... I haven't been able to find, like, I've been trying to find a series Bible, which would be an impossible thing, but it would probably be a valuable... Yeah. 
if it exists. I know that the first season was very Una-focused, second season was very Ralph-focused, and it might have been the third season is very was going to be very Buck-focused. Sure. And because Buck was the, to me, the, the less obviously interesting one, but that makes me very curious about where they were going and what Sergeant Mitchell Buck, because if it ties in with the, the first line, only Mitchell could help us now, maybe that was the, meant to be the through line of the show. Like, this seems like the show that sort of would have ended on the third season, right? So, yeah, like, I wonder if that any episodes from that third season were written up anymore. I wonder if there's any scripts, or if there were any scripts. It could be. I, I've seen not much. I've seen theories. I've seen weird fan fiction. Not much. It, it, oh, it's, sure. it's, it's really weird. It's like, it's like... It's like Star Trek was a city that's been nuked, <laughs> and, and I'm like, shift, I'm like, I'm like, you're, looking like through you're the sifting rubble. through the ashes of everything. Yeah, well. yeah. So yeah, that's that's what I've been able to find from War Star Seven. I mean, if anyone wants to, if anyone out there is looking for yeah, anyone that knows anything about this, reach out. I I love to hear anything more, or like just yep. if you remember this show, because it seems like a lot of people don't really, or they barely do. Yeah, at the end of the day, this is another representation of. Science fiction as a mirror, cracked mirror, um, not to get back into Black Mirror, but of society. And yeah. that, of course, spreads into the occult underground in the same way. Um, getting into more things like this in the future. Yeah, like if anything is going to be a window in the statusphere, certainly a science fiction uh, TV show from the mid-90s would be. Now we just need to see if anyone else remembers this, or ideally someone that even worked on this, maybe. This universe or a different one. Yeah, I could, I'll, I'll, I'll kid up my Neverwind contacts, but they keep dying. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll see what I can, Is that all Mart that has the extra stock? I'll try there. This is going to be on the back burner. We've got, we've got other things to cover. Um, there is a Tribble on your shoulder. It's not even, uh, like, they didn't even show up in this series. We gotta well, get out of here. I'm starting to get strong opinions on tired novels. Let's leave. Oh, fuck. There's a, oh, there's a treble in my pants. There's a treble! walking down the street in New York, and I caught somebody coming towards me. He said, are you Q? I said, yeah. Can you bring people back from the dead? And I went, uh, only people I like. He goes, cool, and walked on. There was a fan who, in 1973 in New York, came up to Jimmy Doohan, who I was with, and pulled out a box that had a hypodermic in it and asked Jimmy if he could get a sample of his blood. A woman 
uh, stood up in one of the conventions and said, uh, what's it feel like to be beamed? There's one gentleman who, for about, ten, what, 10 years? Almost the whole run of, of, since the beginning of The Next Generation, has been sending something in the mail every day to Star Trek. Every day. The funny thing is, it has nothing to do with Star Trek. He sends us travel brochures. Um, and that's all he sends. And postcards talking about where he travels where he travels, or sometimes he describes, well, look at this one. We've got a Victoria's Secret catalog that he sent. Something about a mission. A, a fruit, trees, and landscaping catalog. Caribbean, Hawaii, Canada, Australia. He also will sometimes send postcards talking about what he had for lunch that day, or what he ate, or how many cups of coffee he drank. And it's always to Star Trek. But it's never about Star Trek. 